superstars of World Championship Wrestling are, this is where the big boys play. We are live and we are rocking for two solid hours as we come to you from Dayton, Ohio. In the Hair Arena tonight for World Championship Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, the countdown is on. 27 days and counting until Starcade. Hi everyone, along with the lady legend Larry Zabisco. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 years of Nitro, our chronological breakdown of World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the Southern Front of Wrestling's Monday Night Wars. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me, <laughs> as always, it's my broadcast colleague, Dave Amantorp. How are you doing this week, Dave? Well, I'm doing wonderful because I am uh, far away from you. <laughs> that's that's the specific reason why you're wonderful. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I'm actually at my parents' cabin in Hayward, Wisconsin. It is a, a beautiful day out. I'm sitting in the kitchen. Sun is shining. Birds are singing. It's all very wondrous here. The, um, the bees are trying to have sex with them, as is my understanding. <laughs> right. I had to close the windows because it was too loud. <laughs> um, but no, it's uh, we're we're testing out a new way of possibly uh, doing over the internet of uh, recording instead of requiring us to be in the same place at the same time. So we're gonna see how this works. But uh, I'm optimistic, and I like the idea of uh, kind of branching out and trying new things. So. I am. Uh, I'm doing good today. Great. Well, uh, yeah, I'm still here in lovely 20 Years of Nitro Studios. Uh, we're hoping that the audio uh, is still good on this episode. I, I've still not exactly figured out what's causing those clicks and pops that you hear in other episodes. Luckily, you you shouldn't have that with uh, at least Dave's side of the conversation because he's recording uh, over on on his side of things. But uh, we are continuing to investigate that and trying to figure out all the best ways that we can present you the show. Uh, like Dave said, he's he's out at his parents uh, Wisconsin quite a bit, so this gives us an option. And even when he's in town here, it's it's uh, sometimes at rush hour, quite a drive mm-hmm. uh, to get over to my place. So this just gives us some options because we the shows are pretty long and and we record most times on a weeknight after work. So it's nice to nice to just give other options for ways that we can can get the show out to you guys. So my question is that since in the root household there is the the twenty years in nitro studios. Yeah. Um, are, is your house then the mothership? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, when talking about rush hour, it's uh, just for people have an idea. It's a, it's what should typically be a twenty-five minute drive can sometimes turn into an over an hour. Easily. Just, yeah. Absolutely. Just out of nowhere, too. It, I won't get any sort of like warning or notice from Google Maps that it's going to happen. So. You know, if it's like a rainy day or something like that, we still want to record. Hopefully this will give us an option. And as a result, hopefully we can get more episodes out to you quicker. Now, before we get into today's show, I do want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash 20 Years of Nitro. And of course, you can email the show at 20 Years of Nitro at gmail.com. 
Today is Monday, December 2nd, 1996, and we are coming to you live from the Hera Arena in Dayton, Ohio, in front of 3,800 fans, uh, a sellout for this building, and a total gate of $52,383. This is the 64th episode of WCW Monday Nitro, and it continues the build toward December 29th's Starcade pay-per-view, and the war to settle the score that supposedly was already settled, but actually, like, wasn't settled. Yeah, um, uh, Hollywood Hulk Hogan keeps referring to it as the uh, the war that didn't settle the score. Which is, yeah, he, he does keep refer, refer, referring to this upcoming fight as that, which that name only makes sense if you're referring to the fight that already happened as right. that. <laughs> it's all very confusing, and it's a very typical like Hulk Hogan way of handling things, which he says things without really thinking about them. But since he's already said it, he's going to keep saying it until Starcade, I imagine. To start the show, Tony welcomes us as Pyro spirals above the entrance uh, structure. The I, I never know what to call that. I mean, there is an entrance ramp, but the like um, just sort of like uh, pipes and tubes and everything that they've got comprising like a little stage. I never know what to call that thing. I think call it just the entrance area, the re- uh, the entrance way. Entrance, entrance, entrance way that works. Entrance yeah. uh, scaffolding. Sure. Something <laughs> nice and concise is good. <laughs> Fireworks go off in the arena and Kane Pyro goes off in the ring. Tony says the countdown is on. And I assumed, of course, that he meant the 23 days given to WCW stars to join the NWO. But he actually means the 27 days until Starcade. Ah. Tony is joined by Larry Zabisco and they start to hype up Piper versus Hogan, but are quickly interrupted as the Steiner brothers wander into frame and interrupt the start of the show. This match whoa, has leveled more moms than the Army Corps of Engineers. Wait, 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 just I a got second. something to say. Go ahead. Sting, Let him I don't say know it. if you're in a building or where you're at, but Sting, I don't call too many people in this world my friend, but I consider you one of them. Well, last Monday night, when I see what you did to my brother and attacked him from behind, I'm here tonight to make sure you don't do it again. Sting, you think coming out and dropping me on my head and it's finished, it's over? It ain't over, Sting. Well, tonight here on Nitro, we're gonna see. I'm gonna make sure it's over. If you hear me, come down, Sting. We'll finish it, we'll finish it tonight. I'll tell you what, a challenge. Thank you very much. Challenge made to Sting by Rick Steiner. I think describing it as them wandering into frame is very, <laughs> it's very appropriate because that just, that seems like their personality is like, I, I don't know what we're doing here if we're not wrestling. Wherever Rick Steiner goes and whatever his purpose is, he is wandering. Yes. <laughs> Scott Steiner has a mic and addresses Sting. He says he doesn't know if Sting is there this week, but he wants Sting to know that he considered him a friend. But after what happened last week where Sting attacked his brother Rick, he's now going to be watching Rick's back to ensure that Sting can't do it again. For his part, Rick says that it isn't over between him and Sting and challenges the Stinger to a match later tonight. The Steiners kick rocks and Tony pivots immediately back to Piper and Hogan for a moment before introducing footage of last week's attack by Sting. That's really that's confusing that that Scott Steiner says he's going to watch Rick's back as though he that's not what he always does. <laughs> well, he's been gone a little bit because of the hip injury, so I think it's more like last week, you know, Rick was out here on his own, but this week I'm I'm going to be here so you're not going to get away with that shenanigan again. I know he has a hip injury, but that has not prevented him from working arm day every day at the gym. <laughs> the dude is just jacked up like crazy now. <laughs> 
So Tony tries to roll this footage uh, of last week's attack on Rick Steiner by Sting, but it doesn't roll, and Tony has to ask through the headset, are you still searching for it? And Larry, <laughs> Larry looks really annoyed, and then finally he's like, okay, we don't have it. Oh, we do have it. Okay, here we go. And then they roll it. And, like, that would be kind of excusable if, if they were rolling it later in the show, but this is the opening. How How is this not ready to go already? Right. What, that's, that's just really slapdash production going on in the truck right there. I feel like later on Larry Zabisco will take it upon himself to lecture that person, like, hours later. <laughs> That just seems kind of like a Larry Zabisco sort of thing to do. After the replay airs, snow falls and the lights go crazy because, holy shit, Glacier is finally back on Nitro. Yeah, sort of, but he's missing. There's just something missing to his entrance now. Uh, is Yeah, are you talking about his new shitty music? Yes, I am. I'm talking about his new shit-ass music. Yeah, it sucks. It's this generic like uh, rock stuff that is not nearly as good as the techno Mortal Kombat-y rip-off stuff they had before. Significant downgrade. Uh, I mean, my only guess is that there was some sort of, like, warring about using the similar music, but that doesn't make sense because WCW always does, like, the like the kind of similar-sounding music and gets away with it. So Yeah, and if this were that bad, it wouldn't be on... The, or if the old music, I mean, were that bad, it wouldn't still be on the network. You know what I mean? Anything that oh, was, like, sure. too close to a copyright is, is just never on the network. Uh, so, yeah, I... I th- they just made him a little more generic. Uh, they did add some cool new lasers and lights to his entrance, which is neat because his entrance is like the best thing about him. Yeah, but I mean, they added like all these all this color that doesn't seem fitting. Like they they clearly messed with something that was working really well. I agree. I agree. I I think uh, they had momentum behind this character, and to take him off Nitro for whatever it's been five six weeks. Um, it doesn't seem worth it just to add some more lasers and change the music. It's really kind of strange. Uh, but he comes out and he winks to the camera as he comes down the aisle. It seems kind of unglacier-like, uh, but, you know, I like that he's trying to find ways to show a little a little friendly charisma in there. Everything about this so far is just off. <laughs> Larry says that there's been rumors that Glacier's absence over the last month has been because he's at some sort of special training. You know, okay. I, I appreciate that there was... An, an effort, effort made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, another thing that they changed that I actually think is a positive change is they're not lighting the ring in blue anymore during the matches, which we thought sucked. So that's great. Um, but they are keeping it unique in that they're doing the sort of uh, older, older, or even like what they still do in Japan, where they are keeping the audience in black, but the ring in bright white. Yeah. Uh, NXT does that as well now. Mm-hmm. I think that's a far superior superior look to lighting the audience. So, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I think that that is one way they've tweaked this that actually is an improvement because that blue light was stupid. Um, but- yeah, I mean, the only negative I would say is when you do that sort of lighting, to me as a viewer, it rings as like you're trying to hide your numbers as far as who's there. Sure. I, I guess I could see that if they did that the whole show, but like it's just this match. And like I said, it is a sellout. So that's definitely not what's actually happening. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just saying like that particular look is what like kind of like clicks to my sure, mind. Sure. Uh, especially since like WWE has done that like on and off again, like for years pretty much. Glacier's designated jobber this week is Hardbody Harrison. Uh, that's what he's normally called anyway. Tony tonight just calls him Hardbody Harris the whole time. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, his real name is Harrison Norris Jr. 
He was born in Georgia, went to high school in Florida, and at the time of this Nitro, he was 30 years old and already a veteran of the Gulf War, having served in the U.S. Army. He was trained at the power plant and debuted in 95 as a jobber, a role that he'll keep in WCW until sometime in 1999 when he was let go by the company for generally being an asshole. Uh, he's he's not going to be on another Nitro, so I'm just going to talk about him kind of at length here because uh, there's, as I've been talking about on Twitter for a while, there's kind of a long and fascinating story with this guy, uh, but it has to extend beyond our timeline. So this is really going to be my only chance to kind of tell this story. Uh, sure. When he, One of the reasons he was fired was there was a reporter sent to do a story on wrestling and he was like part of it was checking out where these guys train down at the power plant and mm-hmm. uh hard body just gave the guy a shoot clothesline and gave him like a massive bloody nose and permanently fucked up the guy's septum he had to have a bunch of surgeries uh and like to this day cannot breathe quite right through his nose Jesus. so yeah so they <laughs> So for many reasons, they got rid of him. Uh, He then trained for a Tough Man Amateur Boxing Championship uh, that was aired as like a regular weekly program on the FX network in 2001. Uh, Wait, so so was this like an unprompted clothesline or was it like, I'm going to get in the ring and and, and rough it up a little bit sort of thing? Like, do do we have any context as far as why he clotheslined him? I think he was like, I'm going to show this like, hey, you want to show me a few moves and... Uh, I think he was like, yeah, I'll show you some moves and probably had that protecting the business kind of attitude sure. and thought like, I'm going to give him a stiff shot. And if I'm just and I'm just guessing here, but I'm guessing he probably did not mean to permanently fuck up the guy's face. But he was like, <laughs> right. I'm going to I'm going to hit him stiff and just didn't think like I'm 30 and chiseled out of marble. <laughs> and this guy's a reporter, you know, even if I even if I try to go stiff and not too hard, mm-hmm. it's still really going to hurt this guy. You know, yeah. I, Probably underestimated his own strength going against a civilian. <laughs> right. Uh, so he did tough man boxing. He was the heavyweight championship of that uh, that FX tough man show. Oh, good uh, for him. Yeah. Uh, he will have. Oh, he actually does have one more Nitro appearance next year. Uh, but the reason I want to go into his his stuff is there's a thematic connection to something later on the show. So right. I'm gonna I'm gonna share the story now. Uh, the story of why Hardbody Harrison is currently in jail, serving a life sentence for sex trafficking, forced labor, witness tampering, criminal conspiracy, and obstruction of justice. Ooh, go on. <laughs> Uh, so, from what I can find on the case, uh, his his mo was he would find poor and vulnerable women, uh, just like you know, at a gas station on the street, or sometimes he would just uh, go to like rehabs or jails and bail people out. Uh, they didn't know him, and he would just introduce himself and say like, "Hey, I'm working on helping young women like uh, you know in in trouble clean up their act by." coming to my wrestling school and working for my wrestling company. Okay. I'm with you so far. Then he would bring them to one of two properties that he had. He had like a house, his own house where he lived with his wife and one of his children. And then he had another house across the street that he had living all these women wrestling trainees. Uh, He did legitimately train them in wrestling and have uh, like, backyard wrestling shows where he made little to no money. The wrestlers certainly made no money. Uh, There were men and women. He also did train some men, but kind of this like barracks that he had was just women. Uh, So they would come They'd live in a property, learn wrestling. He'd give them a list of chores around the the property and training that they had to do, uh, including an item on the list called HB training, the HB standing for hard body and hard body training was, was just having sex with him. Yeah. 
<laughs> Another item, kind of your initiation, uh, once you learned everything, was what he called a cut party. I don't know why that's the name, but he called it cut parties, which were just orgies in which the women were forced to have sex with multiple when multiple men, while Norris and other people just watched. When the women resisted in any way, Norris would threaten and sometimes actually use violence to get them to comply. Uh, he also had kind of like, it was almost like a cult-like thing um, where he just had control over these women and some of the men that wrestled for him. He would just sometimes uh, like go to one of his male wrestlers and be like, yeah, your wife's leaving you. She's she's going to be with me now. And as this guy, you know, the wrestler's wife would just leave and now be one of Harrison's many women. Uh, there's a story that he took them on like a tour somewhere, you know, like just somewhere else in Georgia uh, for a wrestling show. And he got two hotel rooms, one hotel room, all the male wrestlers had to stay in together. And then the other was uh, hard body and all the female wrestlers and the male wrestlers wives stayed in hard body's room. Wow. It's just crazy. It's it's nuts. He like he genuinely has like a cult like aspect to this whole thing. Uh, and they said that he would use like a lot of military terms and he would give rankings. Uh, the women would have like military ranks and wear military style uh, clothing uh, the women had squad leaders who were like kind of uh, women that would like keep everyone in line and snitch to Harrison if there was anything like anyone was planning to run away or do anything. There was like a designated leader who would report everything back and kind of keep everything in line. Uh, it's just nuts. This Here's a quote on the story from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Quote, a former U.S. Army sergeant and Gulf War veteran, Norris imposed military-style structure in the homes, several witnesses said. The more experienced women were designated team leaders and watched over, quote, soldiers. Norris, who slept in the, quote, general's quarters, controlled their movements and their money, and Rose Davenport, a team leader. She testified that the women had to memorize Hardbody's Ten Commandments. The first commandment was, respect Hardbody. The tenth, if you have any questions, ask Hardbody. Women who forgot a commandment or broke a rule on another separate list called the 20 things <laughs> had to pay fines into piggy banks labeled with their transgressions. Wow. One, one, uh, one was labeled simply talks too much. <laughs> Norris you, kept... You know that women... <laughs> <laughs> Norris also kept a list of chores for each woman on the refrigerator. Those who didn't cut down trees, plant sod, or cut grass earned fines for their entire teams. Uh, so basically, he had like, they would just get in the cycle of debt because he'd say, like, I paid your bail. You're living in my house, so you owe me rent. I'm going to pay you for doing these chores and doing this wrestling. But then he would find all these excuses to find them all the time, and he would just end up, you know, they would just end up more and more and more in debt to this guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the debt is, like, largely made up, um, but they just, like, you know, that's the control he had over them was making them feel like they were indebted to him. And mm -hmm. so that was, like, the cycle they got into where they had to constantly prostitute themselves because that was the only way for them to make any kind of real money and try to make a dent. But, of course, the way he had structured the whole thing was you could never make a dent. Uh, the cycle was finally stopped when three women were out on a shopping trip with Norris. Uh, they spotted police who were at the mall for, like, something else, and they just made a mad dash over to the cops to report their living conditions. Norris, uh, when this all finally went to trial, acted as his own lawyer and claimed that, <laughs> claimed, that, claimed that he was wealthy and had no need to pimp for money. Uh, so why... <laughs> 
it's partially true that he was somewhat wealthy, and uh, it, the reason he was wealthy was b- he was part of the racial discrimination lawsuit that's going to be brought against WCW in the year 2000. Uh, we will, of course, talk a lot about that when we get up to that point. Uh, but yeah, so so the reason he was able to afford that house across the street and like run these wrestling shows, even though they brought him no income, is he had a big settlement from AOL Time Warner over the racial discrimination suit. Uh, nobody knows the exact figure, but it is said to be north of one million dollars. That's it's it's just like the crazy thing about like like the reality and illusion of pro wrestling is that even though he's like obviously a pimp of some sort um, and like a cult leader in another sort, he still refers himself as hard body. <laughs> yes. I, I almost get the feeling he was doing that long before he was a wrestler. <laughs> like oh, that was just a designated nickname that he enjoyed, you know? So, I mean, like WCW ended up hiring someone that's like a pimp and let him wrestle under like his pimp name. Yes, because there were suspicions um, by other wrestlers while he was a contracted wrestler that he was pimping women. Uh, So that's it's not like something he just got into afterward. He was right. He was doing that. Well, Uh, he was allegedly doing that Mm -hmm. while he was under contract to WCW. Yeah, it's not like, well, I'm not in pro wrestling anymore. Might as well get into the pimping business. (laughs) Norris was convicted uh, of his crimes and sentenced to life in prison. The case, the case once again ended up uh, in the press later on when the judge who presided over it was caught up in a scandal in which the recorded conversations with his mistress possibly suggested that he harbored racial biases uh, along with some weapons charges and other issues that he got caught up in. Uh, I, I read some of it because it's it's kind of all detailed in Norris's appeal. Um, and really what it sort of seems like if you read it was that his mistress was saying like racist things about how the judge should, um, like, sentence uh, black men who are accused of of violent crimes against white women, uh, that he should, like, sentence them more harshly. And it's more like he either sort of agrees with her or just, like, moves past what she's saying. And his argument was, like, look, she was saying the racist stuff, and I was just, like, not engaging with it because I didn't know what to say. And you could kind of see where the judge was maybe coming from. I I believe in the appeal, the government put forth like uh, uh you know all of his his sentencing and kind of show that he didn't if you looked at the evidence it didn't seem like he sentenced black men any harsher than white men mm-hmm. um but the way i understand it is they did end up vacating hard body sentence he was still guilty of the crimes because that was determined by a jury but they were like okay so we're gonna vacate your sentence because the judge gave the sentence so they looked and they're like we're gonna you know make a new sentence now with a, a new impartial judge and that judge just gave him the exact same <laughs> life sentence <laughs> it was like oh yeah this guy does need to be in prison forever so <laughs> right I, I like that the, the judge, judge is probably saying like, look, my mistress, she pays towards the talks too much piggy bank all the time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we're laughing just because the details are insane. But I mean, it's a harrowing, awful, awful story. And if you'd like to hear more about it, we've just kind of scratched the surface. Uh, when I mentioned on Twitter, when I just kind of found out about this and was just like, holy shit, how did I not know about this? Some people recommended to me an episode of a podcast uh, called Crime in Sports, Okay, which is just a, a couple comedians. They focus uh, each episode is on like a different like OJ Simpson or 
uh, Ray Carruth or, you know, just a different athlete who is guilty of crime. Mm-hmm. And they did a, an episode that's like it's a full 90 minutes all about this. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. So if you're interested in a deeper dive into the crimes of Hardbody Harrison, you should check out. I think it's like it's in the 60s, maybe episode 61 uh, crime and crime and sports. You can easily find it after Googling. Uh, I definitely recommend that if you want to hear more. Yeah, that's got. I, if you're a person that listens to that podcast, I mean, that's got to be weird. Where it's like, here's a random pro wrestler that most people have never heard of. Like, why are they, why are they spotlighting him? And then it's like, <laughs> oh, because his his crimes are so like out of this world. Yeah, it's, that it's it's hard to skip it once you are aware of it. Pretty much. Now he has a cool look. He's got cornrows that go horizontally. You know, cornrows usually go like front to back. Yeah. Uh, but these go across his head. I think they look kind of cool. Mm-hmm. A lot of times he has them dyed blonde. I He didn't on this show, but that's uh, kind of normally he does. He's wearing pink trunks, knee pads, and wristbands. Uh, he's definitely earned the nickname hard body. He is, he is definitely a body guy. He's ripped. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, he, this is, you know, it's a typical Glacier match, so it's only about a minute. He sucks. He's, like, not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that was just something I wanted to specify, too, because I was having a little bit of confusion here, is that Hard Body Harrison is different than Hard Work Bobby Walker. Yes, 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 yes. Hard Work Bobby Walker, I think we saw him once in a match with Dean Malenko, and I don't mm-hmm. think we've seen him again. Uh, I don't know that we will see him again. I, well, he'll probably show up in job for Glacier and maybe even Goldberg in the future, depending on how long he stays with the company. Yeah, but I just I just found like the, the names to be a bit confusing, and I was like, wait, like hard work Bobby Walker ended up being like a pimp? No, 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 no. Hard work, yeah. as far as we know, he's an upstanding citizen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Glacier bows to Harrison, then turns to bow to the crowd, and Harrison uses the opportunity to blindside him with clubbering blows. Which, of course, is an indication that Glacier fully approves of his uh, his lifestyle by bowing to him. <laughs> yeah, that's canon now. <laughs> right. Glacier sends Harrison off the ropes and then just sort of shoves or trips him. Um, I watched it like five times and it was really unclear what exactly sent Harrison to the ground, but he went down. He goes way up in the air, too. It's pretty funny. In the corner, Glacier shows off his karate-style striking ability with kicks and palm strikes. He needlessly rolls away from Harrison and poses to a good reaction from the fans who are hot not only for this match, but all night tonight. This sold-out yes. arena is very into the show. Yeah, and I, I feel like very early on that this match is just is clunky as hell. It is, it is. And given that Glacier has shown that he can have smooth matches if it's, you know, like a Pat Tanaka uh, mm-hmm. And not that he's a, I'm not saying Glacier is like an expert worker or anything, but I'm putting it a little more on Harrison than anybody else here. Yeah. I mean, I, I could also see how um, if you don't wrestle someone like Glacier often, it could be difficult because he just has a distinct wrestling style that's almost not even a wrestling style. Yeah. It's it's like a chore- It's more like a choreographed stunt show mm-hmm. or a martial arts exhibition or something. Yeah. So to me. I think that he would have been the benefit if you're going to have him against jobbers, have him against veteran jobbers, like people that are able to like acquaint themselves with the style of Glacier to make it look as good as possible. Someone that's in there just kind of like there to sell moves and and to kind of roll with the punches. Yeah, it's just not going to work out that well. Harrison stumbles towards Glacier and does, uh, you know, when your opponent's coming towards you and you're going to clothesline him or punch him, but he's supposed to duck it. So you go a little extra high to give him room to duck it. 
Yeah. Harrison throws his clothesline so high in the air that I had to rewind it like several times to see what he was trying to do. No. It looked like he was raising his arm up to like get the teacher to call on him or something. It was <laughs> As he ducks the clothesline, Glacier does a leg sweep that sends Harrison crashing to the mat. Uh, it actually ended up look as goofy as Harrison was. It looked pretty good because the leg sweep went really well. Glacier follows up with the spinning heel kick, the cryonic kick, although they still have yet to call it that, for the for the quick and easy victory. Apparently, Harrison did not want to get his carcass out of the way for Glacier's kata that he does after the match because Scott Dickinson has to roll and push him out of the way. <laughs> like he doesn't he doesn't dead weight him. He doesn't make Scott Dickinson legitimately have to push him out. But yeah. he just lays there and, like, waits for Scott Dickinson to push him, and then he'll, like, roll one time, and then mm-hmm. Dickinson has to push him again, and he does it again. He might be just ribbing Scott Dickinson or just enjoying his one minute of Nitro time. <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but I noticed or, it, and I thought it was pretty funny. Maybe that's just what he's into. Maybe that's what the male wrestlers had to do for him. They had to roll him, like, from one place <laughs> to another. That's just his thing. When we return from commercial, various members... Oh, well, I guess we should say what we thought. I mean, you, you kind of already got into it, said it was sloppy. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, there's the re- I moved past it so quick because it was one minute of not much. Harrison didn't look very good. It's nothing that we haven't already seen from Glacier. I'm happy that he's still getting a hot reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am concerned about some of these changes to the presentation because... The character is presentation. There's all. There's not a lot beyond that right now. Yeah, um, and I, I could certainly see how when it comes to booking or setting someone up to face Glacier, that you probably don't put a lot of thought into it because it's only a minute long. Yeah, but there for him, it's a, it's like uh, quantity, uh, quality over quantity as far as his matches are concerned, and that's why I think like it, it would be to his benefit to make sure he has veteran guys that are in there that know how like. They were going to be more uh, able to wrestle this kind of like, like you said, it's like a like a showcase, like a uh, almost like like a like a ballet of sorts of him yeah, in the ring. Yeah. And you just you, you need someone that's a little bit more aware of like, okay, I have to like approach this differently with this guy. When we return from commercial, various members of the Cincinnati Bengals are showing in the crowd, holding up their NWO gear. They seem pretty happy for guys who lost the day before to the Jacksonville Jaguars, 30-27. to 27. <laughs> We then see 25 members of the Dayton Ice Bandits, a minor league hockey team. Uh, the, <laughs> right. They were part of the very low-level Colonial Hockey League and had just relocated from St. Thomas, Ontario, Canada. They lasted a single season in Dayton, but low attendance caused them to again relocate to Utica, New York. Uh, the... <laughs> The one thing I'd like to say about them is their amazing logo looks like a ghost of the Hamburglar who decided to play hockey. <laughs> They're ice bandits, but the bandit in this case is like specifically a ghost. He's, he has no body. He just has a bandit mask and like a blanket and it's got ice skates on. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, that sounds too bad. Like they constantly are relocating to worse places. <laughs> uh, Larry is happy to see the hockey team. But he wants the football jerks, as he calls them, to be kick, <laughs> kicked out of the arena because they're wearing NWO gear. And just to let you know, he would kick him out himself if he oh, wasn't busy he, doing the commentary. <laughs> out comes the team of Joe Gomez and the Renegade. And they are barely to the ring when O Canada starts playing. Even though we see them next to each other, I still refuse to believe that they are different people. <laughs> I mean... Which, 
And I think when you were just talking about um, Glacier, that was like, I think the biggest thing that hurt the Renegade is he had like distinct parts of his appearance that, um, what was it? Was it Kevin Sullivan that, that like wa- washed away his yes. makeup and car- started calling him by his like real first name? Yep. And it was just, I mean, it just was like unnecessary things that just r- ruined his character. I mean, they're obviously not pushing him, um, but they just went a long ways to make him look so generic now. I think once they decided that the Ultimate Warrior ripoff thing wasn't working, they should have reinvented him from the ground up. Totally different name, totally different character. You know, if it, instead what they've done is they just took the the accoutrement of the warrior off him, mm-hmm. but still called him the same thing, and he still got like the long hair, and he still runs to the ring. Like they needed to really shake it up all the way. This this half and half is not working at all. Yeah, he's in like gimmick purgatory right now. Right. Out come the amazing French Canadians and Colonel Robert Parker. Uh, I don't think I've said it before here, but I really like O Canada as an anthem, like a national anthem. That's a O Canada is a great one. Oh yeah, yeah. I it it kicks our anthem's ass. That's for sure. For sure. Uh, the true North, strong and free. Like I know. I'm in Minnesota, so I probably have, uh, you know, pride about the word north that a lot of people don't have. But, like, that line kicks ass. That's a great song. Canadian listeners, uh, congratulations. You got a great, great song. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> you, you did it. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadians do their usual butchery of uh, that fine song, much to the consternation of the Ohio faithful. Like at World War Three, they just sort of give up. Partway through the song, nobody interrupts them. It just sort of they stop and the song fades out and that's it. I I felt like that we did recently talk about like how it felt like someone was ribbing the amazing French Canadians by like not interrupting them. Yeah, that was uh th- that's what we thought Harlem Heat was doing at World War Three, but it seems like that's just always what happens. If you you can either attack them if you want. Mm-hmm. Or if you just don't, they'll just stop singing anyway. Uh, and it has its achi- uh, its desired effect because the crowd is chanting USA by the time they're done, which is all they really want out of this. Yeah, but it, it, it really sounds like they have no idea what the anthem is other than like the first line because they're yeah. just shouting it. But it's like noise. It's not words. Tony mentioned seeing Colonel Le Parker, which would just <laughs> translate to Colonel the Parker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and talks about the computer glitch that we mentioned on our worldwide episode that prevented Starcade tickets from going on sale last week when they were supposed to. Whoops. Anyway, here to call all the action for this one is the man that the French call Les Incompetents, Dave Amantorp. <laughs> I, I, is that the competent one? Uh, the incompetent. Oh, it's a it's oh. a home it's a home alone reference. because oh. that's where the family's going. They're going to Paris, and there's a part where. Uh, Macaulay Culkin's like cousin or whatever is trying to insult him and she's like you're what the French call les incompetents <laughs> oh I totally missed I, t- I swung and missed on that reference well it's probably been a few years since you watched Home Alone I we showed our son last year so all right so the match begins with Rougeau and Gomez who hits a drop kick for a two count the renegade interferes to stop Ouellette which gives amazing French Canadians a tan- the chance to double team Gomez Rougeau sucker punches Renegade to give him and Ouellette the opportunity to double-team Gomez some more. After Rougeau places Gomez in a Boston Crab, a Boston Crab by a Canadian, (laughs) and Ouellette goes 
to the top rope and attempt to moonsault. I believe he's going to moonsault onto the prone Gomez. We don't know exactly what he's going to do because Renegade cuts him off and throws him off the top. Gomez then with a hot tag to Renegade, who has clotheslines and body slams for both of the amazing French Canadians. And then he follows up with a, a pretty decent backspring elbow for Rougeau. Rougeau uh, quickly counters it with a pile driver, and the amazing French Canadians hit the Tower of Quebec to gain the painful victory. And it should be noted at this point that Gomez made zero attempt to break up that cover, too. <laughs> it just kind of telegraphing that the match is over because, like, both sides were coming in and breaking up counts the whole time. But right. then once it's like the three count, Gomez is just nowhere to be seen. Yeah, this was another short match with uh, not a much to say about it. Um, the two notes I have are that during the match, Tony mentioned his memories of Starcade 83, the very first Starcade, mm-hmm. uh, which is where Flair won the title from Harley Race. I think that was Flair's third world title reign. And yeah, it also. In which they, like, um, both the commentators were very hesitant to mention who he beat. Like they oh, don't really? they don't mention who it, they said that Flair won the championship for the third time in the main event. Oh, okay. Which I just thought was kind of odd. Well, more I think what they yeah I don't know maybe Race might be doing some managing in WWF right now um, or something like that. Uh, I don't think he is. Well, anyway, uh, but they also they what they want to bring up is that Roddy Piper was on that show and had that great uh, dog collar match with Greg Valentine. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're. Maybe they're doing a. Maybe they're just reminding you of this great match, but there could also be a little element of like, we had a hand in building up Piper too. He wasn't just a WWF guy. You know, mm-hmm. he's been here before, and he was on our our huge the very first Starcade. I don't know. Uh, the other note that I have is that the crowd actually does a Sherry chant at Parker. Like that's oh. how into the <laughs> show this crowd is. Like. Sherry's not even out there. They just they somebody thought like, hey, this you know they've had problems and this would be a way to get at Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just I'm I'm proud of these Dayton Ohio fans for being so knowledgeable of current storylines and the product they're watching. Well, I mean, if it's eight days later, it's very easy to forget things that happen because they move right the fuck on to different things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after the match, the Canadians celebrate with their flags and manager, and we go to Mean Gene, who is at the top of the entrance ramp with the enforcer, Arn Anderson. Thank you very much, Tony Schiavone. We are in front of a capacity crowd here tonight in Dayton. Inside four weeks now to Starcade on Sunday, December the 29th, the big holiday spectacular in Nashville, Tennessee. You know about the tickets going on sale this coming Friday. But Arn Anderson, I wanted to bring you out. Ric Flair, I was hoping he would have been here, but of course, as we know, he is in rehab, trying to get that shoulder back in shape so he can return to the wrestling wars. But I wanted to bring you out as a veteran that I so respect and touch on the subject of the man who's going to be involved in the main event at Starcade. He is a man that I know very well, and you've met him all yeah. in the ring at one time or another. I'm talking about Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. Before we talk about Piper, Gene, let's first talk about what we know about Hulk Hogan. Let's talk about perception. For as long as I can remember, the perception of Hulk Hogan was he couldn't be beat. Well, Gene, I destroyed that myth not once, but twice in a row. That's all it was, was a myth. You're human, Hulk Hogan. Two consecutive weeks, I might add. Two in a row. 
Now, your perception is that illusion you're living under, Hogan, is that you're going to walk over the top of Rowdy Roddy Piper at Starcade. Ric Flair told me years ago, Gene, the toughest fight he was ever in in his life was Roddy Piper. I took it with a grain of salt, and then I started to watch Piper, and I watched the passion with which he approached every match, the heart, the guts the man has. And then I saw what happened last week. When you called Hogan out, Piper, you knew, Gene, he knew he was calling out the New World Order. All of them. And when he stood in that ring, I didn't see fear in his eyes. I didn't see anticipation. I saw a man focused. And Hogan, you took your best shot. The New World Order, you took your best shot. And when you didn't take Piper out, you know what you gave him? You gave him what we call an edge. Because anything that happens to you now, Hogan, is all well and good. It's called a receipt. What are you going to do when Rowdy Roddy Piper and you are head up? No NWO, just you, Piper. Piper's more man. He's got more guts. He's got more heart. He's a better wrestler. He's more everything than Hulk Hogan. You know, I don't know if this is just coincidence or not, but Arn Anderson, one week from tonight, live on Nitro, Rowdy Roddy Piper will be here. And isn't it, or is it, a coincidence that it's going to be taking place in the home of the horseman, Charlotte, North Carolina? Well, the fact of the matter is, there's an old cliche, and it goes like this, Gene. You don't jump a dog in his own backyard, and you don't mess with family. Charlotte, North Carolina is where the horsemen live and breathe. And we're going to have a little get-together with Piper. We're going to be watching his back. So, New World Order, you're welcome. Come on down. Hogan, you're welcome. Come on down. I think you'll find Charlotte, North Carolina is not such a friendly place. I thank you very much. Words of wisdom regarding Roddy Roddy Piper from Arn Anderson. And, of course, Piper's going to be facing Hogan at Starcade on the 29th. Don't go away. More Nitro when we come back here on TNT. Gene, for whatever reason, decides the thing he wants to ask Arn Anderson about is Roddy Piper. <laughs> All right. Arn briefly wants to talk about Hogan first, saying that there was once the perception that Hulk Hogan couldn't be beat until Arn himself destroyed that myth by beating Hulk twice in a row. Do you remember that? Does anyone I, remember this? <laughs> I remember one was by DQ, and the other, I think, involved a lot of cheating. But I do remember. I, I mean, I, we cover. I, we have a podcast that covers it. But yeah, um, I remember that is during the time in which like everyone's using the high heel shoe as a weapon yes, of yep, choice. Yep. Um, but no, it's just just pointing out that like he had like back to back like two of the biggest victories that he's had that aren't championship victories. But no one remembers it. It's like it's up to Arn Anderson to remind you, like, by the way, I beat him twice in a row. Right, right, right. Arn says that Ric Flair once told him that the toughest fight Flair ever had was against Rowdy Piper. Arn says that Piper has passion, heart and guts and is willing to call out the entire NWO and stand up to them without any fear. The NWO took one of their the NWO took their best shot at Piper, but he's still there. What can Hogan do to Piper when it's just going to be one on one? The crowd chants for the NWO as Arn says that Piper is more man with more heart and is a better wrestler than Hogan. <laughs> These are all true. Gene says that Piper's going to be here next week when Nitro comes from Horseman Country in Charlotte, North Carolina. Arn says that the Horsemen will be in their own backyard and they will have Piper's back. 
I thought this was a really good promo from Arn. Uh, it doesn't make a ton of sense that he has to go out there and talk about Piper, but the fact is Piper has limited dates. Uh, yeah. They're they're saving him, so they need to build their big pay-per-view, and uh, Hogan's not here either. So they're going to have to have other people do some of that hype, and they're mm-hmm. like, well, let's get one of the best talkers we've got to come right. out here. Uh, Flair is going to be on next week, so they don't they don't have him come talk Piper up this week. Uh, so yeah, I I mean if you you have to do it, uh, you certainly could do worse than Arn. I thought Arn did a great job doing the job he was required to do here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you think of the promo? Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent as far as uh, like your perception of it. You know, it is the fact that like there's a huge match coming up in just a few weeks. And none of the participants are available to like even talk about it. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure why they didn't decide to do like the like the taped, like tape promos or anything like that, or unless those count as appearances. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, if 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 Hogan's not there, if uh, Piper's not there, if they don't have Flair available to do that, because that would kind of be his job. Um, yeah, I, I think. Arn Anderson's probably like the the next man up for that, but uh, no. It, and he also made a good. I thought they did a pretty decent job, at least explaining why he's talking about him at all. We return from commercial to the Dungeon of Doom music, and uh, and to the ring come the faces of fear. Tony plugs the rest of the show, where we're going to see Chris Benoit in another U.S. title tournament match. Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, Arn Anderson in the ring, and Lex Luger will also be in action. The Faces of Fear are going to be up against the unlikely team of Scotty Riggs and Robert Gibson. <laughs> All right. Just a week after the breakup of the American Males, and you can just see how truly fucked Scott Riggs is. I mean, this is like he's following the uh, the Mario Gennetti playbook pretty on point. At least Gennetti got to have like a match against Michaels in a feud. Like, Oh, uh, true. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's coming for, but like, there's nothing about him and Buff tonight. It's just, well, I got completely fucked over by my tag team partner. He joined this like hated group last week, but what are you going to do? I'm just going to team up with the shittier one of the Rock and Roll Express. I I can't differentiate between the two to know which one's the shittier one, but he basically, he picked like the oldest tag team partner he could find. It's insane. And, uh, I mean, is Ricky Morton, is he injured? Is he not here? Like, why is he tagging with one of them? It doesn't, it doesn't, I feel like there is, there was plenty of other people he could have picked as a tag team partner that would have made more sense. As the bell rings, we go to split screen for a replay of the NWO's attack at the end of last week's show. Uh, recapping these, recapping these events is the first time in this show that the 30 day contract thing gets mentioned at all. We're almost a oh, half hour okay. into the show, and I just I'm surprised because that seemed like it was going to be such a big plot point, mm-hmm. and really it's like not presented as a big deal so far on this show. Because of that attack last week, Tony says that the Faces of Fear have requested a shot at the Outsiders and their tag team championships, and that match has been added to Starcade. All right. In the ring, the Barbarian dominates Riggs with strikes. Riggs tries a sunset flip, but the Barbarian doesn't go down until Gibson comes in and clotheslines him into a pinning position. But rather than count the pin, Scott Dickinson has to escort Gibson out of the ring, as well he should. (laughs) Riggs works the arm of the Barbarian and tags in Gibson. As Gibson trips Barbarian, the crowd chants for Bagwell. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, not a great sign. (laughs) 
Back in comes Riggs, who continues to wrench Barbarian's arm. Barbarian slams Riggs, but Riggs keeps a hold of his arm and turns it into an arm drag. It's, I hope it was more like, Bagwell, <laughs> Bagwell. <laughs> uh, the, the arm drag, as I called it, is like being really generous, because what happens is he just kind of takes a flat back bump and then no sells it like it's a bump but he acts like i'm on offense and he just kind of rolls over and then the barbarian rolls over and rig stretches his arm it's just it looks terrible it's really bad back in comes gibson who telegraphs a back body drop and is punched by barbarian meg meng is tagged in and he and gibson run the ropes allowing Riggs to tag himself back in and hit a top rope crossbody on meng for two the good guys keep Meng in their corner, doing a lot of quick tags and punches. Uh, it's kind of weird that so far in this match, both Faces of Fear have played the baby face in peril. Yeah. Like, they both keep getting isolated in the baby face corner. It's like a very odd structure. I mean, not just any baby face and heel, like, that would be weird no matter what, but specifically the Faces of Fear getting, like, isolated and playing baby face in peril. Really weird. Yeah, it's like, even though it's only one of the Rock and Roll Express. He st- they still get like that power where they get to look a lot better than they have any right to sure. on Nitro. I-, I just remember like the the few times in which Rock and Roll Express faced like uh, was it Flair and Arn Anderson? Yeah, yep. And those matches are like fifteen minutes long. <laughs> yeah, yep. Meng manages a tagged Barbarian, and the Faces of Fear hit that back body drop power bomb combination, uh, which looks especially vicious here on Riggs because. I think, you know, when we've seen him do it, it hasn't been on a guy with, like, probably as thick as Riggs is. He's he's a big boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it looks just great. Gibson breaks up the subsequent pin. Um, I For one thing, that's now becoming, like, my, my favorite highlight on Nitros is seeing that powerbomb. Absolutely. And also, I, I feel like the Barbarian kind of allows himself to not get, like, a full grasp on him because he wants to power him up. And drop him with the power bomb. I feel like that he's using that as like a, a deliberate like show of strength. Yeah, I agree. Because they, they keep doing it over and over, but he almost never catches him flush. And yeah, I, it, it almost looks better because he has to like struggle to get them up and you just makes him look so much stronger. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like he's doing that intentionally. Sure, could very well be. Barbarian hits a backbreaker for two as Larry claims that Jimmy Hart is fluent in 25 languages. <laughs> Meng comes uh, in. And- <laughs> I, I, if I was sitting there, I'd be like, okay, start naming them. Yeah. Larry, can you name more than six languages? <laughs> <laughs> right. And can you do it without sounding offended that you have to mention them? <laughs> Meng comes in and kicks the shit out of Riggs before choking him on the ropes. I hope one of them's like Latin. <laughs> like I, he's talk, he's like speaking all these like ancient tongues. Meng gives Riggs a pot. Yeah, Aramaic is on there. <laughs> Klingon. <laughs> Meng gives Riggs a pile driver, but Gibson again stops the pin. In comes Barbarian again, who tries a standing elbow drop, but Riggs rolls out of the way. Barbarian tries again and gets Riggs this time with an elbow in the back. Riggs tries a sunset flip again, but Barbarian stays standing and tries a sit-out senton that Riggs avoids. Barbarian sells his ass for a second, then again tries and misses a standing elbow drop. Riggs stays in Gibson to, like, this is supposed to be the hot tag, and Gibson 
you know, throughout the 80s was probably like the biggest hot tag in the business. It was just Ricky Morton getting the heat put on him and then hot tagging Robert Gibson. That like was their entire act. Uh-huh. But he gets tagged in here and this crowd has been hot all night and there's no reaction to this hot tag at <laughs> oh, all. Oh, Scotty Riggs. Gibson tries what looks like a float over DDT, but it doesn't rotate enough or something, and Barbarian lands with Gibson's head caught between the Barbarian's back and the mat. It looks very painful for all involved. Uh, Even though Gibson's the one who seems to have gotten the worst out of it, he tries pinning Barbarian for a two count. In comes Meng, and he and Gibson punch each other with reckless abandon. Gibson stops to get an enziguri on Barbarian, but he can't pin him because Meng is still standing right there. He goes over to deal with Meng, but then turns around right into the Barbarian's big boot, the kick of fear, and the faces of fear get the win. After the match, Riggs tries to save face by attacking the faces of fear with a chair. I think they're, like, trying to give him a little something here. Uh Uh-huh. He gives them each very soft but unprotected chair shots to the head. I mean, I say unprotected chair shot to the head, but he, I mean, he taps them. They're fine. This is nothing for anyone to be worried about. Uh, he then lays in with a real shot to Meng's back before the faces of fear retreat. Meng never goes down because, of course, he's not white and his head is very, very hard. Um, I felt like that the 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 audio was really good for those chair shots, though, because even though they were oh, soft, sure. there was a good sound to them. So, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that match. I wouldn't say that anyone other than that, well, there was the weird arm drag and there was the D. So, yeah, there were a couple pretty big botches Mm -hmm. and it certainly wasn't good. So, yeah, I'd say that was a pretty under average match, even for just a tag TV match. Nothing, nothing good there. Yeah. And then it's just the case in which if the faces of fear are are going for the tag team championship, they should look a little bit more impressive. That's probably true. Especially if it's a team that's literally just tossed together. It would have been better if not Riggs, because I want better things for him. But if some mid-card babyface had been out there cutting a promo and the Faces of Fear just interrupt and do their uh, back body drop powerbomb combo and then just leave and do that every week, yeah, that would be such a better <laughs> use of them than these like eight-minute shitty matches. Yeah. No, this this was just – it was way like, – like any match that has any member of the Rock and Roll Express. It's just yeah. way too long. I guess the exciting thing on Starcade will be to see if they can hit the back body drop powerbomb on Kevin Nash. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's going to be him and not Scott Hall that's taking it. Yeah. Even doing it to Scott Hall would be amazing because yeah. Hall's a big boy, but I want to see Kevin Nash. <laughs> I want to I see Kevin Nash briefly like head over heels. Yeah, I want to see him air. get back body dropped. Like, forget the <laughs> <Right>. powerbomb. <laughs> I, I think I think that'll be a good match though, uh, especially if it is like Scott Hall versus Barbarian and Ming. <laughs> yeah, I think that could be a good match. I definitely agree with that. We go to commercial, and when we come back, they plug Saturday Night, where you could see Arn Anderson, Lord Stephen Regal, the Faces of Fear, Jeff Jarrett, the Taskmaster, and much much more. Hmm. Tony says on Saturday. Tony says on the last Saturday night, they showed footage from the Sullivan Benoit house show match from two weeks ago. They are still talking about this house show. And uh, we actually see a bit of that footage now. Sullivan and Benoit brawl by the ring. They brawl by the stairs. They brawl in the bathroom where the entire Dungeon of Doom lies in wait and ambushes the Canadian Crippler. Back in the ring, the Dungeon of Doom kicks the shit out of him until woman comes out and stands over him. 
and uh, then she demands that Sullivan calls off the attack. This is they kind of refer to this last week in promos, and they'll refer to it, I believe, tonight and next week. Uh, woman keeps saying uh, that she told Sullivan that if he kicked Benoit one more time, she was finally going to leave him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's this moment. They did this big thing at a house show. <laughs> You're right. Uh, Sullivan kicks Benoit again and then walks off, and an enraged woman jumps on his back. Mm-hmm. The Dungeon of Doom break it up and keep the two apart. The faces of fear now holding woman as uh, Sen- B- Sullivan makes her watch him kick Benoit some more. Back in the arena, the Dungeon of Doom music plays again, and out comes Kevin Sullivan. Uh, he is not accompanied by Jimmy Hart, who also is not with the faces of fear this week. So, I don't know, yeah. just kind of weird. Yeah. Sullivan's opponent is already in the ring. Uh, he is a jobber that is never named on the show, but in WCW, he was sometimes called Casey Sunshine. He a, sure was. <laughs> a play, of course, on Casey and the Sunshine Band. Which he is al- a weird thing to play on. <laughs> he also wrestled under the name Sexy Steve Casey, uh, but his real name is Sean Casey, and the WWE Network labels this match on their like little dots or whatever as Kevin Sullivan versus Sexy Sean Casey. <laughs> I assume he probably went by Steve Casey a little more because uh, he's Ohio based. That's he's a local guy brought in, you know, because they're in Dayton. Um, even though he did have, like I said, other matches with them. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, there was like, uh, wasn't there a Reds player named Sean Casey? Uh, yeah, he was um, pretty good actually. He was like a first baseman, right? Sean Casey and I. I thought that he also played for the Tigers at one point. I think you could be right there, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that that might anyway that might be why he goed by Steve Casey, and you know, because that's I love when a when a wrestler's name is like such a slight tweak on their real name. It's like why not just do your real name? Other than I suppose maybe nowadays with Google and stuff, you want to keep a one degree thing of difference. But uh, anyway, well, Sean Casey did not debut until '97, though. Oh, okay. So it has nothing to do with anything. He just wanted to be Steve, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> just, I just want to be Steve. <laughs> Can I please be Steve? <laughs> uh, he was trained, of course. You know, he lives in the Cincinnati area. So he was trained partially by Brian Pillman as well as Charlie Fulton. He has appeared on various local indies, and he will have just two WCW matches. This one and being squashed by the Giant on Saturday night, which is also taped this week. So I said he had other matches. I guess I was just thinking of the one. Uh, And KC Sunshine is what he uses uh, on the indies more. Uh, So we're never going to talk about him again other than tonight. So here I will mention that in 1997, he appeared in Playgirl magazine. Oh. And he even made a few appearances for the WWF on Shotgun Saturday night. was Was he called Sexy Sean there? I that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, that might mean that might explain why they call him that on. Oh, sure. That's that's could be true. He also had a few matches uh, in TNA. Also, in 2013, he pled guilty to wire fraud. Oh, good Uh, for him. (laughs) Yeah. So it turns out that the local police uh, in the Cincinnati area were getting a lot of calls uh, or they were getting a lot of bus for prostitution. This okay. show is a this is a prostitution heavy episode of our podcast. More so than usual. <laughs> and they noticed that a lot of the prostitutes happen to be working for Casey as exotic dancers at his company Naughty Bodies. <laughs> <laughs> we provide only the naughtiest of bodies. <laughs> 
So the cops did a few stings where they would like uh, call naughty bodies and r- request a stripper to come out and strip for them. And then almost always that stripper would then proposition them for sex at the end. Mm. Uh, so Jesus Christ. <laughs> so the cops learned that the naughty bodies were not only accepting cash, but would also sometimes take credit card payments and then misre- and then misrepresent the charges so that credit card companies, because uh, like a credit card company is not just going to allow you to charge like prostitution two hundred dollars right so they Uh, would they would put it under like other types of entertainment like djs or clowns so that's what it would so so somewhere in ohio a guy's wife looked at the credit card statement and was like why did you spend twelve hundred dollars on clowns last month (laughs) clown service oh i can explain it was actually prostitutes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right no no i'm not a weirdo or anything it was just a prostitute i feel like i would rather tell my wife i was sleeping with prostitutes than i was spending hundreds of dollars on, on clowns yeah <laughs> well my my initial reaction is like why didn't they just list like the, the well maybe they didn't want like the company name to be on the credit cards yeah i that's a great question and i don't have an answer for that um it's probably just because everyone involved was very stupid. Would that, be my guess. that was like, as soon as I asked the question, I was like, oh, I can figure out. It's because it's uh, someone that's working with naughty bodies. Yes. Uh, it. I mean, I guess it could be in case your partner looks at the credit card statement and you don't want to have naughty bodies on there. That could be the reason. I don't know. But in any case, the cops didn't have enough uh, evidence to charge Casey as being like essentially a pimp. Uh, mm. They just didn't have enough evidence that like he knew that the women were prostituting themselves, but they did know that he was guilty of misrepresenting the charges on the credit card statements, which oh. is considered wire fraud. So that's why that was what he was sentenced. It's sort of like Al Capone going to prison for tax evasion. Yeah. Uh, only much stupider. <laughs> yeah. So it could have been the, it could have been the sort of thing where if 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 that was, the only thing he was doing was mislabeling the thing like the transactions that yeah. there might not have been a big issue with it. But the fact is like, that was the only thing they could bust him on. Right. Much. So he probably got the longest sentence for that. Not very serious crime. Right. Uh, so he is out of jail and he wrestles to this day. Uh, I actually asked our old friend, Jerusifer, uh, just because it's an Ohio situation. I, I won't get into it because I didn't ask if I could share it on the podcast, so I don't know what's told to him in confidence. But, you know, he knows a lot of indie guys. Yeah. And uh, these uh, Sean Casey does not have the best reputation uh, among that set, <laughs> among the locals. And in- Apparently now he's a born-again Christian, and maybe he's cleaned up his act some. Oh, now it's even worse. <laughs> yeah. I, there's so many guys where it's just like, now, any you know, Sean Michaels does it to a, certainly to a, a degree yeah. where it's like anytime that you're like, hey, why are you such a big asshole? They can just be like, you're right. I was an asshole, but I'm not now because of Jesus. So you can't even be mad at me now. And it's like, fuck off. You're still right. responsible or, for the things you did. Or I don't have to own up to anything because exactly. like, yeah. Jesus forgave me. And so you should do. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, so <laughs> somehow this Nitro has two people who have been later convicted of crimes related to their completely separate prostitution rings. <laughs> Just what what a bizarre coincidence. I was like, I was ecstatic when I found that out. I was like, what are the odds of something like that happening? Yeah. And not only that, but like we go way more at length about their crimes than their actual matches. 
Uh, well, anyway, here to call all the action of Kevin Sullivan versus sexy Sean Casey is our own law-abiding citizen. All right. Dave Hammontorp. <laughs> uh, well, I, I decided to refer to him as Casey Sh- Sunshine in this because, like, to me, that's easily the best name that he it has. It definitely is the best name that he used, yeah. So, uh, so Kevin Taskmaster Sullivan, who just has a weird relationship with, like, whether he's just called Kevin Sullivan or Taskmaster. Sure. But on this episode, when he was coming down to the ring, the little Chiron said Taskmaster. So, oh, okay. I, don't, I, I don't know. Whatever you want to call him. <laughs> Either way, he's an angry little man, and he attacks Casey Sunshine before the bell, tossing him out of the ring within seconds. And this is through the ropes, by the way, not over the top rope. So he, he might be learning, but I'm not <laughs> sure. Back in the ring, Kevin Sullivan punches and kicks Sunshine after taking off his, like, he has, like, a denim vest thing, which is, like, weird because it's, like, super, super tattered. I, I don't know. It seems like a, like a, like a regular denim jacket. They try to make it into a vest and it just went awry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a mess of a thing, but he gets, he gets rid of that. And then he tosses sunshine right back out of the ring. Kevin Sullivan sets himself up to jump off the apron onto sunshine. Then he hesitates, grabs Tony Schiavone's bottle of water. <laughs> yeah. And he throws it at Casey sunshine. And by the way, just completely misses him. Yeah. You know, he, when he threw him between the ropes, it kind of looked like he was trying to throw him onto the announce table and Casey just avoided it. And then he throws this bottle. I think that Sullivan is just having himself a little laugh and trying to fuck with Tony Schiavone. Yeah. I think like, that's all this is, is he just keeps trying to do things like throwing the guy into the table didn't work. So like, damn, if he's not going to just steal the water and throw it just to, just to be funny. Right. Um, Anyway, after all those shenanigans, we go back to the ring where Sullivan immediately puts it puts where Sullivan immediately places Sunshine into the tree of woe. We get Ryan East into the corner, followed by the double stomp, and Sullivan gets the pinfall victory in about a minute. Um, the majority of this match was him throwing Sunshine out of the ring and yeah. back into the ring. That was like eighty percent of the action. It was a very pointless match. Besides, I think he really put some stink on that double stomp. Like normally, you can see the way that he like bends his knees so as not to hurt the guy he's doing it to. Yeah. It looked like he put the majority of his weight into the double stomp tonight. I think because he was like, "This guy fucking sucks," and I'm mad at how bad he is. Yeah, or maybe he's like he likes to double stomp the guys that have those like great abs, <laughs> just to just to show them. Uh, so here's a couple of notes I have. Uh, Larry, at one point, I forget why, I forget the context, but he can't think of the word headphones. Like, he's a professional broadcaster, and he's like, I need the the thing on my, my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, regarding Casey, there's a point where <laughs> Larry goes, he's trying, he's trying to call the action, and he goes, what's the name of the guy with the hair? Referring to Casey. <laughs> right. And Tony just goes, I don't know. Nobody ever told us. <laughs> <laughs> that is like such a WCW moment right there. Right. And the Nobody last thing, ever told us. Last thing I want to point out is that this match is so short that the uh, if you use like the WWE network on a, on a computer where you get the little dots that show the start and end of a match. Yeah. There is no second dot for this match. <laughs> Because oh, it, wow. it would have to be so close to the first dot. 
<laughs> so it just doesn't exist. There's wow. just a marker for the start, and then that's all you get. <laughs> After the match, Mean Gene is in the ring with Kevin Sullivan. All right, I thank you very much, Tony Schiavone, Larry Zabisco, Kevin Sullivan. You have been described in the past as uh, being a little sideways, a nut perhaps. What we've seen here tonight and what we've seen recently from Baltimore, Maryland, in that match between Benoit and yourself, I would have to say that you, sir, are a man possessed. Benoit, I thought I was the greatest chess player to ever play this game. In Baltimore, I hurt you real bad physically. But later, that night, you've hurt me mentally and right here. Benoit, you know what I'm talking about. You've had your own problems in the past. You can say that again. You've had your own problems in the past. Please. Benoit, let me tell you a story. There's a lot of you in me. And sometimes that sweetness wears off. Benoit, I don't care if I dig my own grave with my own hands with you, because one of us will be buried alive. Because now the equation equals three. Don't, don't expect any late night telephone calls from me. I thank you very much, Kevin Sullivan. Stay tuned, folks. More exciting Nitro coming your way live here on TNT. Gene says that Sullivan is a man possessed. Sullivan talks to Chris Benoit, saying that in Baltimore, he hurt Benoit physically, but later that night, Benoit hurt him mentally and right here. I'm supposing that he pointed at his heart, but <laughs> we're in tight on his face, so he can't actually see it. Yep. He might be pointing to his butt. (laughs) (laughs) But. (laughs) Sullivan says to Gene, you've had your problems in the past. And Gene says, you can say that again. So Sullivan says, you've had your problems in the past. Classic. (laughs) They both play it completely straight because this is supposed to be a serious promo. And like, I loved it. I actually loved that they were throwing in goofball, screwy comedy. into this moment that was supposed to be serious because they played it totally straight-faced. It was just really, really well done. Yeah. Sullivan then then says he sees himself in Benoit, and one of them is going to end up burying the other alive because now the equation equals three. Kind of doesn't make sense at the end there, but I like the part about where they had to bury (laughs) each other alive. (laughs) Right. Gene tells Sullivan not to expect any late-night phone calls from him, and that's that. I, I didn't quite know what that meant. I don't know why Gene is like, I'm not going to call you late at night, but okay, whatever. But that, to me, it suggested that that was an option before. It just, there's a lot of Gene jokes where I feel like he's either making an inside joke or he's referencing an old movie or show or something that I just don't know. You know, like this feels like one of those. It feels like there's a joke there that I'm on the outside of. Yeah, um, I do. There's plenty of times where Gene... Makes jokes for the sake of Gene. After a break, Billy Kidman is out for a chance at Dean Malenko's cruiserweight title. Tony tells us that signed for Starcade, Malenko will defend that cruiserweight title against the J Crown title held by Ultimo Dragon. 
That is, of course, assuming that the Iceman can get by Billy here tonight. <laughs> right. Out comes Malenko as Larry takes personal exception to Tony saying, you are not ready moments earlier. And Tony has to explain that he was reading ad copy and that's just PlayStation's slogan and not a personal insult declaring Larry unready. <laughs> oh, he's so tiring sometimes. It's just like minutes later, he's like, wait a minute. Why did I hear you say you are not ready? Like, I'm ready. And Tony's like, right. you fucker. It's just PlayStation. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> Seriously. Imagine being Larry Zabisco's son. Just Jesus Christ. He's just oh. riding your ass over everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Like right away in the morning, you're just staying upstairs, even though you're hungry. <laughs> you just you just can't deal with them. Tony says that Starcade will also feature the finals of the U.S. title tournament and that the WCW Championship Committee has issued a statement to clarify that they and only they can make title matches. Eric Bischoff has no authority to do so. Of course, mere moments later, Larry confuses the issue by calling them the executive committee and asking mm-hmm. if they can override contracts, too. So, like, now we're just muddying the waters. This whole thing where you could, like, convert your contract was already kind of confusing. Yeah. And now Larry's suggesting that the executive committee can override contracts. It's just, I'm so unclear as to the power structure right now. And, I mean, it's fair because they're confused as well. Oh, that's true. Anyway, here to call all the action for this one is our own mole inside the championship committee. Dave Amantorp. <laughs> and as of all, I was the one that gave uh, Billy Kim in this title match because he sure <laughs> smiles a lot. He would just look good as a champion, so let's give him a chance. So we start off with some fast-paced counters, culminating Billy Kim in hitting a rough-looking Huracarana for a two-count. It's just one of those where Malenko doesn't get flip over that well, so he kind of lands on his neck a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he then drops the champion with a... He then drops the champion to the mat with a headlock. Back on their feet, and Kidman hits a head-scissors takedown, which causes Malenko to scurry from the ring. He dodges a plancha by Kidman, and then powerbombs his challenger on the Rita floor. <laughs> it's just like, this match went to 11, like, really suddenly. Yeah. And you can tell that they, I mean, the fans, like, are slow to react, because I think they were like me. They kind of didn't believe what they saw there. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Sonny Ono arrives at ringside to play the uh, Japanese tourist bit with a flash camera. Back inside the ring, Malenko drops Kidman with a belly-to-back suplex before applying a reverse chin lock. You know, we haven't seen Kidman since uh, September when he was El Tecnico in that one match. Oh, yeah. That's the last time. we. we, I think he's been on Nitro like two or three times, and that was the most recent one. So then the question is, when did we last see him as Billy Kidman? Like, uh, Yeah, I didn't look that up. That's a good question. Um, back, in, back at the ring, Dean Malenko completely ignores Sonny Ono's distraction, while I try to ignore Zabisco's they sure love their cameras, don't oh, they, comment. Yep, I put that in my notes. Yeah. A little, uh, a, a small part of the crowd actually does a Sonny Ono chant. Yeah, these... These fans, I they kind of they're kind of doing like the chance where they want to get like a direct reaction sure. from someone at ringside. Yeah. Which is which is I don't think there's any problem with it. It's just it's kind of weird to see it like back in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, yeah. They feel like a more modern crowd in that way. Especially like cheering for a heel manager. 
You know, oh, that's yeah, just yeah. like they chanted to annoy Parker, but mm-hmm. they're chanting like in favor of Sonny Ono. Um, so after he ignores the distractions of Sonny Ono, he absolutely drills Kidman with a brain buster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a note that like, again, I think that like whatever the setup is, like the, the mic that's on the mat is, uh, it's just kind of really on point tonight. Sure. And it captures it beautifully. So, like, it looks devastating, but it sounds even worse. Yeah. There's a nice sequence where Malenko whips Kimmin into the corner and stops when Kimmin tries a counter with a boot. Kimmin immediately runs out of the corner right into a back elbow. So it makes Malenko look like a goddamn genius in the ring. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then they repeat the sequence, and then Malenko just eats the boot, and then just... Everything is lost as a result. He just They just turn around, do the exact same thing, and Malenko just, just plays the role of the idiot. So, whatever. <laughs> uh, Kimmin then hits a middle rope dropkick and a perfect plex for two. He didn't hook his fingers, and I was surprised that Larry Zabisco didn't mention anything <laughs> about that. They exchange a series of small packages, none of them gaining the three count. After a middle rope suplex, Malenko goes to the top, but the flash of Sonny Ono's camera makes him fall to the mat. It was his reaction. <laughs> yeah. He was so blinded, he loses his balance and flies <laughs> onto the mat. It's ridiculous. Uh, Billy Kimmon takes advantage and goes up for the shooting star press, but Malenko puts his knees up. Malenko then quickly gets on the Texas Cloverleaf for the submission victory. Um, my notes here were it was a it was a pretty sloppy match. Um there was a lot of cool like sequences though. Uh, I think this is this would count as like a a, a better than average. Um, the shenanigans with Sonny Ono were really terrible though. The shenanigans were bad, and there were a few moments pretty noticeable to me where Kidman was like out of position or just sloppy, or there was like a time where Malenko like went to punch him, and like <laughs> and Kidman flinched. He like flinched away from the punch and then was like oh right we're working and then like took the next punch it was just really like because Malenko pauses when he flinches like what are you doing what is happening yeah uh so yeah I think Malenko looked good but I thought Kidman looked uh, like kind of he looked pretty green and rough around the edges in ways uh that I don't really remember him standing out before personally but I mean Uh, the match overall was good yeah yeah and it's definitely I mean it's better than having Ricky Morton and <laughs> Scotty Riggs team up. But uh yeah, Riggs doing double duty. He's just coming out with every member and then they can you know they had the Fantastics like once a few weeks ago. Now he oh, can yeah. team with Tommy Rogers one night and the other guy a different time. Um I would be fine if if that is what happens for the next few weeks if uh if Scotty Riggs <laughs> keeps coming out with a different partner, different old timers specifically. Right, yeah, cuz he's like I can't like people my age, man. Like you just can't <laughs> trust them. I need someone with like the the veteran presence. But like he always comes out with a new like veteran, but they keep <laughs> losing, so he has to move on to the next one. It'd be it'd be better if next week he comes out with the other Rock and Roll Express. It would be. I'd like I would like that. Malenko stares down Ono, who heads up the ramp, wa- waving a little uh, miniature Japanese flag. After a commercial, the Dungeon of Doom music plays as, once again, it's a three-laugher week. (laughs) 
The countdown to hour two starts. Tony says that we still don't know if Sting will answer Rick Steiner's challenge. And out comes Big Bubba with Jimmy Hart, who I guess is in the building. He just didn't want to help his other clients tonight. <laughs> right. He was busy, okay? For once, the timer expires before the bell, so the pyro doesn't interrupt anything. That's nice. Yeah, that's a nice little change. Tanae and Heenan welcome us to hour two as Shivani begins his walk to the second hour's broadcast position. <laughs> Out comes Jeff Jarrett as Heenan claims that the anticipation for Piper and Hogan is greater than that of when he managed Andre the Giant to against Hulk Hogan. Hmm. That would be WrestleMania 3 he's talking about. Like, one of the most uh, famous matches of all time. Right. Like, I, I get the hype and saying, like, I know Tony gets a lot of shit for saying, like, this is the biggest night in the history of our sport. But, like, mm -hmm. when, you, when you are comparing it to a specific, it somehow seems so much worse. Like, yeah. this is more, if he, if he said this is the biggest match I ever remember being a part of, that would not be nearly as bad as this is bigger than that specific, very, very, very famous match. Right. <laughs> Bubba starts off the match with a side headlock and a shoulder block. Jimmy Hart mocks Jarrett's strut. I, I really liked watching him do the strut on the outside of the ring. Oh, yeah, that was a, that was a very uh, gift-worthy sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Bubba knees Jarrett and throws him into the turnbuckle and then catches Jarrett in the opposite corner trying to float over and slams him to the mat. They lock up and exchange wrist locks. Jarrett ducks a punch and hits some of his own. Bubba tries a back body drop, but Jeff DDTs him and poses. Jarrett gets distracted by Jimmy Hart and Bubba sucker punches him and chokes him with a boot. Mark Curtis warns Bubba and Jimmy does some choking of his own. The announcers speculate on Sting's potential ring rust if he is indeed to face Rick Steiner later tonight. Jarrett slides to the outside and threatens to punch Jimmy Hart, but Bubba blindsides him uh, from behind again. Hart holds Jarrett for Bubba to punch him, but of course Jarrett ducks and Bubba nails Hart right in the kisser. Mm -hmm. Jarrett rolls Bubba back in the ring and heads to the top rope for a crossbody and a two count. Jarrett calls for the figure four, but Bubba kicks him into the turnbuckle. Hart throws the megaphone into the ring. Jarrett tries a sunset flip, and Bubba tries to nail him with the megaphone. Jarrett dodges and rolls Bubba up, but Mark Curtis is dealing with Jimmy Hart and doesn't count the pin for ages, so Bubba manages to kick out. Curtis and Bubba argue over the megaphone, and Bubba wrenches it away, holding it in front of his face just so that Jarrett can get a drop kick that drives it home and allows Jarrett to get the pinfall victory. And if any of that sounds familiar, it's because they did literally the exact same finish seven weeks ago on the October 14th Nitro. Yeah. These Very two guys, familiar. the exact same fight over the megaphone, drop kick it into his face. Like, it wasn't even... A year ago, it was two. It was two months. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, this was like a total. You know, I'm uh, maybe I shouldn't even say this. I'm not an expert, but like this is my understanding of like what is just complete Memphis wrestling, like with the way the ending kind of went and these two and the comedy elements and certainly yeah. Jarrett's got his background there. So like this felt like uh, this felt to me like what I understand Memphis style wrestling to be. Certainly, Jarrett. Yeah. It just pretty much a filler match just to have Jared on screen. Jared struts and has his arm raised as replays are your Pep Boys power pin of the week. <laughs> Pep Boys, says Tony. They've got everything there but gas. 
Well, you could help them out with that, quips the brain. Ah. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> it, it cracks up Shivani, who is not above enjoying a fart joke. <laughs> he, <laughs> right. like, he giggles at that one. <laughs> they are soon interrupted by the Steiners, who are in the ring with a mic, and Rick is calling out Sting. Whoever would have thought that tonight was going to be a, a two Rick Steiner promo <laughs> night. After some goading, Sting finally appears in the rafters. Heenan calls him the Phantom of WCW. Rick says instead of attacking him from behind, why doesn't he come fight him one-on-one? He asks Sting if he's going to accept the challenge. After a long pause, Sting nods yes and walks off. The Steiners look surprised and concerned for a moment until Rick breaks out in a smile and we go to commercial. After break, we go to the announcer's desk and a loud weasel chant comes from the crowd. The announcers wonder what will happen with Sting and Steiner later on. The NWO music plays and Tony looks at his format notes and says that this is not the planned music of Squire David Taylor. Wait a minute, this isn't Squire David Taylor's music <laughs> at all. The uh, entire NWO come out except for Hogan and Bagwell and mm-hmm. like Tony and everyone is perplexed. Tanay wonders if it's the night of the NWO takeover that they've been promising. Tony like literally says in the headset, can anyone tell me what's going on? <laughs> Uh, the reason for that is that Eric decided not to tell anyone that the NWO was going to take over the show tonight. So the announcers literally had no idea that this was going to happen. We are seeing, uh, I mean, they're, they're remaining in character, but they're, this is more or less a genuine reaction from them. Yeah. When the NWO gets towards, uh, the announce desk, they all just run off. Heenan is of course, he's got the bad neck. Tony also has a bad neck. So there's just like so long. Yep. The Outsiders and Bischoff get on headsets, and Six and Vincent just fuck the fuck off. Yep. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) I'm back, declares Eric. He then speaks to Piper, saying that he's Piper's best friend, and he's been trying to save Piper from getting his ass kicked by Hulk Hogan. Look, Piper's my best friend. (laughs) Don't you know what happened to that tub of guts Van Vader? Asks Eric. Yikes. We then see footage of Hogan beating him up. They then show the NWO beating up Flair backstage, and finally, Hogan beating on Savage and spraying an outline of Savage's body with spray paint on the ring. That seemed like a convoluted way of just ripping on Vader. It seems like they should have just shown Hogan beating... Like, we didn't need uh, him beating up guys who are either with WCW or might be back. Like, if you want to use it as a way of of making your competition look weak, like, just stick with that, I, I think would have been better. Yeah. Hall and Nash put over Hulk, and Eric warns Piper to stay home with his kids for the holidays instead of coming to Starcade. Out comes David Taylor, a guy that I was just last episode saying that I want to see again. Well, here you go, Tim. (laughs) Eric claims that his office has been swamped with WCW wrestlers trying to convert their contracts. Hall says that they could use a good Englishman and promises to scout Taylor. Eric says that Taylor is up against Eddie Guerrero, and Nash and Hall both say that Guerrero can go, even though he's no six. (laughs) I had had that on my notes, and I'm like, (laughs) that's an insult, sir. I mean, it is, but, uh, and I I guess I'll just get this out of the way now. Um, As guys who have the reputation, and I think a lot of it is earned, of of undermining their peers and, like, doing a lot to ridicule guys and make them, you know, not seem very good. On commentary tonight, the Outsiders put over just about everybody. 
They do. Like, they really they, do. They really go out of their way to say good things about just uh, every performer that comes out. You know, even they're complimenting baby faces and they're trying to find ways to do it still in their heel character. So for mm-hmm. them to say, like, that Guerrero, he can go, man. He can really go. Now, he's not as good as this guy in our faction, but he's good. That that's good. I like. I've got no problem with that. Even though, like you, I think that's a hilarious <laughs> statement on its face. Right. Um, but I just I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that the outsiders do more of an old school insult your opponents in a way that still puts them over. And I think they really did great in in their efforts at that. Mm-hmm. Throughout and the there, I mean, there's a very easy storyline of the the thirty days uh, to convert your contract. And so then, like. They're seeing every guy in WCW as a potential member of the New World Order. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a v- easy explanation as to why that they're putting over some of these guys, like especially like we could always use a good Englishman, right? Line, line that they use over and over uh, during the rest of the show. Yeah, they do that. Um, basically, like they'll do it. We need a good Mexican. We need to get a good Canadian. They keep like turning it into we need to like expand internationally. Yeah. As Eddie comes out, Eric says that this doesn't count as the official start of NWO Nitro because when they do that, the graphics will be better, the lighting will be better, and mm-hmm. Nash cuts in to say, "And the talent will be better," and they all share a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, here to call this one is our own. Uh, I've got nothing. Dave Amantorp. All right. So Guerrero attacks Taylor before the bell. But Taylor quickly recovers to lay out Eddie with some European uppercuts. Early on in this match, we get a split screen with highlights from Guerrero's tournament win last week against Conan. While Guerrero nearly gets a pinfall with the backslide, Paul and Ash talk at length about their love for sushi. <laughs> After a couple of head scissor takedowns, uh, Taylor applies a hammerlock as Eric Bischoff pontificates about the United States title. It's another one of those things where it's like, you know, we'll let you have your tournament. You can have the belt back. He can be champion, but he has to defend. The winner has to defend against the giant. Yeah, it's uh, kind of weird because Eric says like, okay, the championship committee said that, that they control all the titles, but I'm still executive vice president and I might not be able to change the title matches, but I can add stipulations. Mm-hmm. So like we're going to allow the U.S. title tournament, but the winner has to face the giant which is not really a stipulation. That is still setting up a title match. Right. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> we're playing in some really gray areas yeah. here. There's really no reason for the championship committee to like agree to that, you know, decision by Bischoff and then yeah. WO. I, I I like the better the idea of uh if you want this ch- title back, you have to come back and take it. Yeah, like I think I think just leaving it at that is a more effective way to be like, like if whoever wins the United States Child Tournament really wants the belt because it's their belt now, and if yeah. the giant keeps holding on to it, eventually it'll be like, you know what? Just to be showing that I'm a, a defending honorable champion, I'll go against the giant. Like to me, that makes more sense than trying to put in these stipulations while also indicating that you don't have that power. Well, maybe uh, it could be like a little bit. They've killed that idea when they were like, if they don't give us the belt back, we'll just make a new one. So like, you know, for the giant to say, come and get it. Like, why would they bother now? Because they've they've been very clear that like, we're not going to come get it. We'll just we'll just go to belts by Dan and order a new one. Yeah, I feel like after that comment last week, they were like, cut it on that comment. 
they're they're trying to kind of move on from that because I I feel like if you start mentioning they're going to make a new title, then you have to make a new title. Sure. So maybe that was the sort of thing where we're like, no, 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 no. Let, let's not make that part of the storyline here because we're just not willing to deliver on that. But anyway, um, I w- this is toward the end of the match, which is only about two minutes long. Uh, so Eddie Guerrero eventually hits the frog splash for the pinball victory. <laughs> that was the only other note I had in there. Um, yeah, we talked last week about how like at a certain point last week just became a night of short matches. Yeah. Like this was a night of short matches all the way through. Yes. Uh, that tag match earlier with Riggs and Gibson versus the faces of fear was like to this point, the only match of any substance that we've had at all. Mm-hmm. After the win, Eric says a few times that he hopes Guerrero will call him back to join the NWO. He says, Hey, I'll even hire your brother. <laughs> Which, like, what a burial of Chavo that he's like, fine, you, whatever. Like, we'll take that piece of crap. Like, as long as you come. Which is not even his brother. That's his nephew. Yes. The, oh, well, you know. Are, we either a, talking about, are they talking about Chavo or uh, um, Hector? You're, you're right. They are probably talking about Hector since we have even seen him. And they've yeah. already hired. We Chavo already has a job there. So it would make a lot more sense. Yeah, that's actually my mistake, not Bischoff. Sorry. As Eric transitions to commercial, Hall says, cue the porno music and the NWO theme plays, (laughs) and I laughed very hard. (laughs) We come back from break, and the NWO admire those in the crowd who are wearing their merch. We then go to Lee Marshall, who is on the road in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're telling me now we got to go to Lee Marshall. He's standing by in Charlotte. Rowdy, Roddy Piper stopping garage. Lee, before you open your mouth, let me ask you one very, very important question. Yeah. I haven't heard from you. You know, I'd have thought better of you. Now's not the time or place, but I'd have thought better of you, pal. Pal. No, oh, he talks you, real I, tough he, while wait, he's in Charlotte. Was right? he li- live at Arn Anderson's double wide here or what? <laughs> you may, yeah, make no mistake about it. Coming back to Charlotte where Ric Flair is is like coming into Liverpool with the Beatles, pal. This is Horseman territory. You mean it's old and dated? You make no mistake about it. I'm in a Queen City. We got a party going on here. People excited, first of all, about the Panthers and the Niners and then the Monday Nitro coming to Independence Arena in a week. Everybody in the Tar Heel State grabbing a ticket to the Independence Arena box office. Also, Ticketmaster, that's your 1-800-COLLECT-ROAD-REPORT from Charlotte. Hey, Lee, proud hey, to be Lee. here. Hey, Lee. Yeah, what? Two words. What? Three weeks. See ya! <laughs> the velvet tones of Lee Marshall. <laughs> Eric asks why he hasn't heard yet from Marshall about joining the NWO. And uh, Marshall really gives it to Eric for being like a you know low-down jerk for joining the NWO. Mm. And uh, it's... They don't really get into it here, but like these guys go all the way back to working in the AWA together in the 80s. So there's like a long history. So when he's like, I never thought you'd be the type of guy to do this. Like uh, if you actually knew the history between these guys, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting development in their personal relationship. I I thought that Lee Marshall did a really good job of uh, like, I have to deliver this information right now, but I really hate doing it with the NWO. Yeah. Like at the very beginning, he's like, Yes, what do you want, Eric? <laughs> yes, absolutely. He he plays it off wonderfully, in my opinion. The NWO joke about Marshall visiting Arn's trailer home in Charlotte, and Lee says that being in Charlotte with Ric Flair is like hanging out with the Beatles. You mean an old and dated? Asked Scott Hall. <laughs> <laughs> 
just fucking brutal great <laughs> like i said they didn't really bury anyone on but that that's a pretty good burial <laughs> yeah you you gotta be a little bit quicker with Scott Hall. <laughs> marshall says that people are excited about the carolina panthers and nitro next week eric says two words three weeks uh referring <laughs> to the countdown on the contracts mm-hmm. and nash and afterward nash goes like the velvet tones of lee marshall everybody yeah <laughs> <laughs> Out comes Arn Anderson to face Jim Powers. I assume Powers is on the show solely so the NWO can make more subtle jokes about him being on steroids. Yeah. Like, that, that has to be why he's booked. Right. As he comes to the ring, Teddy Long gets right in the camera's face for a big West Side. <laughs> Which, like, Teddy Long does not seem hip enough to be <laughs> calling out West Side. Yeah. So it was very, very funny. Anyway, here to call all the action is our own young man who is jacked, juiced, and full of beef, <laughs> Dave Amontorp. Fantastic. <laughs> While uh, Bischoff and Hall talk about office spaces inside uh, the Turner Complex, Arn Anderson tosses Jim Powers out of the ring and rubs his face on the arena floor mat. Yeah, they get real insidey there because they're talking about like nice office spaces the NWO might move into and they start talking about... Um, Jamie Siegel's who or Brad Siegel, who yeah. is like uh, I think he's like the next executive above Bischoff. He's like Bischoff's boss, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. So they're like really getting inside baseball into the Turner organization now. Yeah. Uh, when we return back to the ring, a body slam and a knee drop gets double A, a two count only. While Arn chokes Powers on the middle rope, Hall starts talking about the different announcers in WCW. And I wish I had more notes about that, but that's all I have. <laughs> At this point, I wrote, I can't care. I can't get myself to care enough about this match. Jim Powers on offense with clotheslines and a knee lift, but he is just too boring. Um, anyway, Art Anderson hits a DDT out of nowhere for the pinball victory. I just, it's just, it's just a match to enhance Art Anderson. And even then, Jim Powers is just. He just does, the guy does nothing for me. I mean, like you said, it seems like uh, another one of those cases where they want to bring him out so the outsiders can make fun of his physique, pretty much. But yeah, this, or, this, or like make fun of how he got that physique. Oh, right. <laughs> but, um, and no, I mean, and this is like more evident as far as like how they're approaching their commentary because Arn Anderson was out earlier on uh, ripping on Hogan. Right. But Hall and Nash are totally like, no, no, like, arm can go like we'd be happy with him in the nwo yep he's a he's a pro like he's a veteran yeah so they were they were totally talking him up uh so here's a couple notes that i made more things that happened during the match than anything in the match itself uh hall talks some shit about larry zabisco and says that if larry doesn't stop his all his talking hall's gonna bring him out of retirement Mm -hmm. so he warns larry to stick to golf uh they make some jokes about piper's assistant they're like, who's speaking of Piper, who's that small muscle man in the beanie and Piper t-shirt? Uh, so, like, that's just a little writ or an inside joke. Like, Piper is kind of famous for always having an assistant, like, uh, at all times, a guy who would just, like, do whatever, you, you know, run and get him some water or just, just do whatever. Um, okay. In, like, the 2000s, it was actually this guy, uh, Johnny Fairplay, who was a Survivor contestant who had some work in TNA at one point. Oh, managing yeah. Or something. That rings yeah, a bell. He was Piper's assistant for a number of years. Um, so that's just like, yeah, that's just a little thing that he always had. And 
and then to get another little dig in, they call that guy uh, Piper's Brutai as a little dig at Ed Leslie, who was oh, brother nice. Brutai. Mm-hmm. So they're just like calling him Hogan's assistant, basically. So I thought that was good. Nice. Uh, they make fun of Art Anderson for that Nitro months ago where you remember there was a Nitro where everyone thought that Flair was in the NWO's limo. And, oh uh, yeah, they were talking about how he was trying to look through like uh, he was trying to look through the tinted windows at night. Yeah, <laughs> they were yeah. laughing at him for it. And uh, and the only other note I have is that they kept talking as if Sting was like in the NWO. They they keep like the when they talk about Sting, it's as if he has joined their group. Mm-hmm. Well, there do, there certainly is like this approach the NWO has of which like um, people are going to join their group without any sort of like formal announcement it seems like especially like with the 30-day contract people will just show up and be like i'm part of your group now and that's going to be fine with them right um and it seems like that's their approach to take it with sting where every time they see him it's like he's wearing our colors he's totally acting like he's part of our group so i can't wait for him to be at the next group meeting After the match, Arn gets his hand raised, and Nash talks about how Piper is an idiot and Hogan is an icon as we go to commercial. We come back to the horseman music playing again to introduce Chris Benoit, who is out for his U.S. title tournament match against Steven Regal. We also seemingly interrupt Bischoff ordering someone in the production truck to order him a pizza. Like, I think that's a joke. I think he's doing it, you know, because yeah. he's, he's doing a bit, but it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Benoit does not have woman with him here tonight. The Outsiders and Eric strongly put over Benoit and say how good he would be in their group. Out next is Lord Steven Regal, the television champion. Regal yells a bit at the NWO like he walks as if he's going to go over to the broadcast booth and just kind of yells at him and then yeah. heads to the ring. And Nash tells him to leave the doily at Grandma's house next time, <laughs> referring to Regal's like cravat that he wears. And I also like they had these callbacks to remember that we got that belt for him. Oh, yes, that's right, because they attacked Lex uh, in the match on Saturday night where he won it. Yep. Hall says that Regal always looks like he smells something, which is a perfect <laughs> description. Yeah. <laughs> that's spot on. These two start off, like, immediately stiffing the hell out of each other with slaps and chops until Regal works a wrist lock into a Greco-Roman knuckle lock for a pin attempt. In support, presumably, of the Canadian Chris Benoit, the crowd chants, USA. <laughs> <laughs> they, they mean well <laughs> they get back on their feet with fingers still interlaced and try to power each other into position with benoit getting in some headbutts until regal kicks benoit's wrist and lays in some more punches he gets a hip toss for two and he is bleeding from the head likely from one of those headbutts from benoit mm-hmm. uh so <laughs> so now he's bleeding which poses a problem for WCW because they do not show blood on their program, but this is a live TV show. Benoit nails some palm strikes to Regal's head and then takes him down with a hip toss for two. Regal does a drop toe hold and slaps on a chin lock, and like the camera now is pulled back to, I'd say, like a medium shot. So we're further, it's basically like we're only seeing the hard cam, we're not cutting to any other camera angles, and we're kind of medium, uh, like, it's... It's a broader shot of the entire ring than you normally see for very long. Right, Be- yeah. Benoit gets a side headlock, and they strike each other and grapple some more, and now the camera pulls way back, as if you were sitting in one of the last rows in the arena. Uh-huh. It just stays like that 
for the rest of the match. So I, I'm just I'm not going to talk about it over and over again, but just know that we are watching the rest of this match as if we were in the nosebleeds. Uh, luckily, in a pretty small arena, uh, but mm-hmm. you are still like in the nosebleeds. Yeah, and to his credit, Hall was finding like uh, other reasons as to why they're doing that. Like he's just making fun of their production team. Yeah, and how like when the NWO takes over, they're going to have much better production and like. Yeah, he's like, we should fire these guys. Yeah. Yeah. He's finding reasons to talk about it without, like, bringing attention to why they did it. Regal works over Benoit with kicks to the back and a knee to the face. Benoit chops him in a corner as Hall justifies the wide shot by claiming it so they can keep an eye out for Sting. Nash says that the Steiners show typical WCW style by trying to fight Sting two-on-one, which is such perfect heel hypocrisy. Yeah. Yep. Hall makes a little joke. They kind of give Steiner the same treatment they do with Jim Powers, saying that it should count as three-on-one, given how big Scott Steiner is. Uh-huh. He should count for two whole people. <laughs> right. Regal works a chin lock. Is the outsider share an inside joke, uh, quoting a thing that the Beatles said in their youth? Uh, I forget how they even bring it up in context, but, like, Hall asks Nash, where are we going? And then Nash goes, to the top, to the very top. Which is oh, a, yeah. a thing that the Beatles would ask themselves when they were younger. They mm-hmm. would say, like, John, where are we going? And then John would say to the top, to the very top. Mm-hmm. So somehow that's just a thing the outsiders apparently like to quote because they worked it into their commentary. Yeah. Benoit comes back at Regal with chops and a top rope headbutt for two. Benoit sets up for a tombstone, but Regal reverses for one of his own. But Benoit reverses it again. and ben- But Benoit reverses again and hits it finally. But Regal rolls to the outside. Benoit tries a Pescado, but there's nobody home. Regal throws a European uppercut and sets Benoit up for a top rope butterfly suplex, which he nails for a near fall. Benoit tosses Regal with a German suplex, as Nash says that it's nice that the NWO now has a pretty boy who also happens to be a hardcore redneck, which refers to Marcus Bagwell. Yeah. Hall asks if the cameraman is on strike or what, and says that the NWO <laughs> are going to fire the entire crew as soon as they get the chance. <laughs> Benoit flips Regal into a turnbuckle ass over tea kettle and then hits a dragon suplex for the pinfall victory and advancement in the tournament. Uh, I'm going to be honest. This was probably the match of the night, uh, you know, easily probably the best match on the show. But the camera angle makes watching it like a completely different experience. Yeah. Uh, And it's it's like hard to judge Uh, even watching it like nowadays on a big TV. I can't imagine watching this on the TVs more common to 1996. Like, you know, which were a lot smaller and everything and the, and the definition not quite so nice. Uh, so it's really, really hampered by the way that it's shot. It, it's different, but it was also like it was enjoyable to me because it, it made you feel like you were back in 96 in the arena watching it. As a one time thing, I agree. I think this is yeah. cool. Like if, if the WWE Network put a camera at every house show in the in the back row and just shot the whole house show. Like, I'd probably tune into a few of those, and it'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, So this is basically, you know, sort of like that. Yeah, and I I like the fact that that Benoit and Regal, like, nothing about the way they wrestled each other, they did not let up once he started bleeding. Like, there were some shots that were still right to the injury, like, initially. (laughs) No, knowing those guys, they were, like, happy as hell when they got color in the match and then probably were mad to find out that no one got to enjoy you know the way that they would like them to enjoy it yeah we go to mean gene who is oh actually there's a funny line before we go to mean gene hall has been talking 
for that entire match about how they need to stop being at this wide shot. They need to zoom in. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, zoom in. Come on. What is going on? We need to fire these guys. And then the second Bischoff goes, all right, we're going to go to me and Gene. Hall goes, eh, maybe stay at a wide shot. <laughs> <laughs> We go to Mean Gene, who's in the aisle with Mongo, Deborah, and Arn Anderson, who are soon joined by Chris Benoit. All right, gentlemen. I don't know. Before I interview anybody, maybe I should be talking about whether I've got a contract or I'm going to be back at a golf course. Arn Anderson, come on in. I want to get Chris Benoit in here, too, and talk some business that I think needs to be addressed here tonight on this television program in light of things that have happened recently. Certainly... I see Benoit coming off a victory earlier on. You successful. I think all of a sudden the worm has turned. I see momentum here for the horsemen, including the big victory for Steve Monga McMichael and, of course, Chris Benoit at Halloween Havoc against the Faces of Fear. Very tough team indeed. And, Deborah, you certainly look terrific tonight. Arn Anderson, let's start from the top on this laundry list. Last week... I'm upside down in the wreck, getting broke in half. One week later, I'm enjoying that incredible rush of driving somebody's head through the mat. Nitro, you gotta love it. Now, Luger, first of all, I'll address one thing where you're concerned and I'm getting off of it. Two things I'll never use to describe you are quitter or coward. You're neither one, you've proven that. But the horsemen are refocusing. We're rededicating ourselves. If WCW needs leaders, we'll take that responsibility. Popper, we'll back your play. But we're only no greater than the sum of our parts. And Chris, one part's missing. Where's woman? Right now, woman is taking care of horseman business, as she always does, aren't Shopping. I don't know. If she was taking care of horseman business, she'd be right here at the Hare Arena because this is where horseman business is taking place. Make no mistake about it, Arn. Make no mistake about it. Woman is as much a horseman as all of us standing here. I know the horsemen are going through a transition period right now, plagued by injuries, but through thick and thin, we've kept our side of the bargain up. All right, Steve McMichael. Just a minute, Chris. And this ain't no time to be screaming and hollering, baby. All I can do is give you some advice from my own personal experience, baby. You know, not long ago, I was part of another team that should have been a dynasty. It didn't happen. Why? First, with a little victory comes a, a little ego. Guys start worrying about their own personal agenda. And then what happens? It what tore it all apart, baby. Dissension. Oh, no. Steve, stop it right there. I will tell you what dissension is. It's having to listen to Nancy every week in the dressing room talking about how great Chris is and how cute Chris is. And I'm sick and tired of her tacky, cheap perfume she sprays on herself because she says Chris loves it. And I tell you, this, this has started a long time ago for me. A little expose like here. I Ever since I was in elementary school, it started there when I was Little Miss Alabama. And then when I was in junior high and I was Miss Cinderella. And then on even into high school when I was the prom queen and the homecoming queen, and on to college when I was Miss Crimson Tide, and even on to later on in life 
It's Mrs. Texas and Mrs. Illinois. I tell you what, if you don't straighten this out, it's going to tear everything up. And the way you deal with this is you have to rise above it. Arn Anderson, what do you make of What's your sense of all of this? Let me look at the world and everybody out there and much. put this in perspective because I am one of the head knockers. Chris Benoit, you were handpicked as a horseman. Nobody's more prouder of you than myself. You give me your word, woman's a horseman. You give me your word, we're gonna put this back together and nature boy, I know you're at home, baby. You're as big a part of this as you ever were. Then that's all I need. Put it there, pal. One other thing I wanna mention, I have noticed Chris Benoit, in all due respect, that woman has been going out to the ring, in my opinion, it seems, with you exclusively. Gene, woman is a horseman, and I'm a horseman. Well, sometimes things aren't always as they seem. Listen, let the world tell you out there, adversity introduces a man to himself, and we'd all rather be a horseman than anything else we can think of. Ooh, right Thank there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Three out of the four horsemen, Deborah McMichael, and ladies and gentlemen, something is going on here that is pretty tough to describe, but I think you get the picture. Stay tuned. More Monday Night Raw. A huge match coming up after this. Arn says that last week was rough, but this week things are better. He addresses Lex Luger and says that he knows Luger is no quitter or coward, and now the horsemen are refocused and rededicated, and they are prepared to be the leaders that WCW needs. Arn says that only one thing is missing, and asks Benoit where woman is. Benoit tries to assure uh, everybody else that woman is off taking care of horseman business, but Arn is just not going to accept that as an answer. Benoit says, make no mistake, woman is as much a horseman as everyone else standing there. And I like that he's standing up for her, but like, is anyone as much a horseman as Arn Anderson? <laughs> <laughs> right. Mongo offers Benoit some advice, saying that he was once part of a team that should have been a dynasty, but wasn't, because with victory came ego and personal agendas that led to dissension. I really like the way that Mongo brings the 85 Bears up as an example of something that should have been more dominant. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that was a really, uh, to use a Mongo word, apropos. Apropos, that's right. Deborah interrupts. <laughs> Speaking of apropos, here come, like, the most bizarre non sequiturs that I can remember in quite some time. Uh, Deborah interrupts, saying that she's tired of listening to Nancy, tired of Nancy's cheap and tacky perfume, and how much she talks about how great Benoit is. For some reason, she then goes on a laundry list of what might generously be described as accomplishments. Being named Little Miss Alabama in elementary school, Little Miss Cinderella in junior high, both prom and homecoming queen in high school, and college where she was uh, dubbed Miss Crimson Tide, and later in life as Mrs. Texas and Mrs. Illinois. Uh, Illinois. She absolutely fails to connect this list of titles to anything that she was saying about woman like there's she just lists every beauty contest she's ever won and at no point does she say why she is listing them or what they have to do with the present circumstances yeah when i was watching this episode i i left the room but i could still hear it yeah uh for a bit and and after a few seconds i'm like what the fuck is going on because i just hear her keep talking and keeps talking about all these different accomplishments of hers and it's just it's like it's it comes off as very unprompted. 
Yes, and it's out of nowhere. It's out of nowhere. And like you said, it doesn't tie into what anyone else says and no one reacts to it whatsoever. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like the best way to handle Deborah is to let her say her piece every now and then <laughs> and just kind of move on with your life. But that was crazy. That was it's one of the weirdest things that's happened <laughs> is that she just just goes off like the person who's not really there to do a promo suddenly yeah. just goes off on on it just it doesn't even it doesn't even feel like it's like satisfying her character it seems like it's satisfying deborah the person yes to mention these things like she's been waiting for months to get this <laughs> off her chest <laughs> y'all i don't know if the audience even knows that i was mrs illinois <laughs> right <laughs> Uh, the next thing she actually says is that Benoit has to straighten this out now. And I realize I don't know what he needs to straighten out. Like, not only Deborah, but Arn, Ma- I don't know what anyone is mad at him about. <laughs> right. What are they mad at him about? That he has an affair with woman? Like, that's been going on for months and no one seemed to give a shit. And, like, all of a sudden now everyone's really mad at him. And I don't, there's no indication as to why. And she's been with, she's strictly been with the horsemen forever. Yeah. She has not, she hasn't been coming out with the Dungeon Doom or Kevin Sullivan or anything like yeah. that. It's There's, so weird. It, it's just, you know, it's it's like your friend's trying to give you advice in a relationship that's just like terrible advice. That's only <laughs> going to make it more dramatic than at resolve anything. Arn says that Benoit was handpicked as a horseman and he's proud of him. If Benoit gives his word that woman is a horseman, that's all he needs. They shake hands. <laughs> I don't. Why did this have to be in public? I don't know. If they, it, <laughs> at the end, he says, he says, oh, but if you say she's fine, then she's fine. Yeah. Then what the fuck are they talking about? What's going on here? Arden says that they'd all rather be horsemen than anything else that they can think of. They seem mostly unified now, although, like, I feel like it's going to be hard for the things Deborah said specifically to be taken back. Because, like, everyone just kind of questioned woman's motives. And you could just say later, like, oh, I was suspicious, but I see now that you're okay. Like, Deborah called her cheap and tacky and, like, attacked her perfume. That's not something that you can just, like, later be like, oh, you know, I changed my mind or whatever. Oh, she, Deborah's got to put her money in the, uh. The piggy bank that talks too much. <laughs> uh, by the way, I think I think the underlying thing here is that all these members of the Horsemen are like, listen, we only hang out with each other because we're friends with Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah. And since he's not here, it's really <laughs> awkward. But they're trying their best, and they just they don't know what to say to each other. As we go to commercial, Tony promises us that after the break, we're going to get a huge match. And when we return from break, that is immediately proven to be a fucking lie as Public Enemies music is playing. Oh, I thought, I couldn't remember. I thought that was the Sting and Rick Steiner, but no. No, nope. First we get this one. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, What a fucking bullshit lie that is. Both uh, guys come out, which makes the first time that we've seen Rocco Rock on Nitro in quite some time. They, You know, they were both out with injury and grunge made it back like three weeks earlier than rock did i he wasn't even on world war three i'm pretty sure in the battle royal by the way i feel like this is a good moment to to point out that what someone discovered on the wwe alumni website oh yes yeah i saw this 
where if you look up Public Enemy, it's just two pictures of Rock o' Rock. <laughs> it's not even the same picture. It's two different pictures <laughs> yes. just side by side. <laughs> and then I think if you click on it, it just gives a pro- the profile for Rock o' Rock. That's hilarious. Poor Johnny Grunge. R.I.P. Like, show the dead man some respect. Get him a profile, guys. Well, I mean, they're both dead, so. Sure, yeah. Well, I don't mean take Rock or Rocks away. I'm just, <laughs> just saying add one for Johnny Grunge. No, I'm saying they should disrespect both of them equally <laughs> with no with no photos. The outsiders say that they respect Lex. Nash says that Lex picked him up like he weighed only five pounds at World War III, and Lex would be a great addition to the NWO, but he acknowledges not liking him personally and thinking mm-hmm. that Lex is never going to take them up on the offer. A slight Luger chant rings out as, he's Rocco, as he and Rocco circle. Rock drops Lex throat first on the ropes. Grunge chokes Lex in the bottom rope and then cabbage patches as Rock comes over and chokes him with a boot. Eric confusingly claims that they're not trying to eliminate WCW as there's room in the world for more than one wrestling organization. Isn't they're, they're suggesting that every single WCW wrestler convert their contracts and join the NWO. How is that not trying to eliminate them? Yeah, their mission statement needs some revising. It's very confusing. Like he's really just saying it because what he wants to do is then he he wants to be like uh, the NWO are going to be number one and WCW is going to be number two. The implication being like the WWF won't even be one of the two biggest promotions. Well, this Our company is going to have two promotions that are bigger than the WWF. Yeah, then they say some Japanese promotion will be yeah, number three. Yeah, I'll go three. <laughs> he says some Japanese company could be number three and then Nash goes ECW could be four. <laughs> right. Eric Bischoff pretends to not know who they are. Then says, I don't think so, before asking, oh, you got three bucks on you? <laughs> like, that's how much it would cost to just buy ECW? Yeah, then Hall says that you, it's, it's fun because you can play bingo afterwards. <laughs> um, I could, You could kind of tell that Bischoff was mad that he brought up ECW. Like, there was a moment where he had to, like, okay, how am I going to address this? Yeah, he, Without he definitely like, gets uncomfortable a few times when they bring up stuff, especially the ECW. Right. Rockets Lex. Oh, there's a, yeah, the other part that I remember is there's a part where they ask if they can, like, swear, and Bischoff's like, hey, look, you know, like, I've got the power, but there's still rules. Right. <laughs> it's just, like, such a lame <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> We're the badass organization that does whatever we want, and we don't swear. They definitely, they definitely got Bischoff for like the power he has in WCW. Not necess- they don't think he's cool or anything right, like that. Right, right. They're simply putting up with his like trying to be like the cool younger brother that has to tag along with them. Yeah, he's like a, a he's like a really rich kid who's allowed to be in the bully gang because like he, of the cool shit he can buy them. But like yeah. nobody likes him. Right. They just put up with him. Yeah. Rock gets Lex with an Irish whip and a clothesline in the corner. Nash tells Lex to kick rocks and then stops himself from saying ass. Oh, this is, yeah, this is the moment I'm talking about. Rock punches Lex repeatedly and hits another Irish whip, but Lex dodges a corner charge and starts fighting back with lefts and rights until Rocco cuts him off with some kicks. Randy Anderson walks Lex back and Grunge chokes him some more. Outside the ring, Grunge continues working Lex over, beating his head against the announcer's monitor. This is uh, far more offense than anyone has had on Luger in weeks, and it's fucking public enemy. (laughs) 
The crowd chants, we want Sting, but Luger can handle this on his own as he lifts Rocco Rock for a gorilla press slam. A clothesline turns Rocco inside out and Lex calls for the torture rack. Rock sends Lex the ropes where Grunge trips him. When Lex is back on his feet, Grunge gets on the apron and tries holding Lex in place, giving Randy Anderson an opportunity to stand on the bottom rope to try and break it up. God damn it. (laughs) Rocco Rock charges, Lex dodges, Grunge crashes to the floor, and Lex racks Rocco Rock for the submission victory. Grunge tries charging in the ring, but Lex throws Rock into Grunge and then celebrates in the ring as Public Enemy lick their wounds on the outside. Hall references Lex's steel plates in his forearm, and Bischoff references the motorcycle accident that caused Luger to get it installed. Hall says to have a body that looks as good as Lex's should be criminal, which I think might be a steroid reference. Like, if you look like that, it should be a crime. (laughs) I think that's a subtle, maybe, implication that a crime was committed in getting that body. Yeah, especially since (laughs) we're only, like, a year or so removed from, like, that, the Vince McMahon trial. Right. So. Eric hypes Sting coming up next after the break. Uh, I don't like most of the matches tonight. It was short, and I just don't have a lot to say about it. It was fine. I Like I said, I'm really confused why Public Enemy... Like, Lex has been just dispatching everybody left and right. Why they gave so much to Public Enemy is beyond me. But I guess it's two people, so there's that. And Lex, like, at the end, Lex not only got the win, but he dominated both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Lex, Lex is still hot. They're still making him look good. Yeah, and the Outsiders made him sound like... A formidable opponent, too. Absolutely. We come back to the Steiners making their entrance to much woofing from the crowd. Hall says that Scotty looks jacked and buffed, as always. Nash says that Robbie, Rick's uh, Rick Steiner's real name, looks completely insane, as always. Sting makes his way down through the crowd and over a guardrail. Um, Nash also suggested that like they need to get Scott Steiner back on the road again. Uh, it suggested oh. that like he has a lot of time to work out. Right, right, right. But once he gets back on the road, maybe he'll come come back down to size a bit. <laughs> Sting makes his way down through the crowd and over a guardrail. He gets in the ring, carrying his baseball bat, and he and Rick steer each other down. Oh, you know what? I just realized he had the black bat this time. Last time, I think we talked about him having the aluminum, like the regular-looking bat. This time, I think he switched to the more iconic black baseball bat. Yeah. Rick wants him to get rid of the bat, and Sting tosses it on the ground and offers his back to Rick. He's <laughs> Rick does, like, not even hesitate to get in this free shot, immediately <laughs> right. charging him, knocking Sting down and out of the ring. It makes Sting look pretty dumb. <laughs> it does. Because, like, other, t- other cases it was just, like, some guys in the ring, but this is supposed to be a match. Right, right, right. It seems like the, the wrong instance of what you do, like that sacrificing yourself sort of thing. So he he looks pretty foolish doing that. Scott rolls Sting back in the ring, and Rick punches him a few times. Sting doesn't fight back, but finally he ducks a punch, and Rick leaps forward, missing Sting and bouncing backwards off the ropes and right into position for the Scorpion Death Drop. The NWO celebrate on commentary, and Sting picks up his bat. Scott gets in the ring and stands in front of his brother. Sting points the bat at Scott and uses it to gently move Scott out of the way. By this time, Rick is on his feet and Sting does the same thing he did with Lex before where he kind of shoves the guy backwards with the bat a little bit. 
and then turns the bat around and offers it to Rick. Sting again turns his back, inviting Rick to hit him with the bat, which Rick is more than happy to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But as he swings, Scott gets in the way and grabs the bat instead. Scott tosses the bat to the floor where the Stinger grabs it and leaves. The Steiners talk amongst themselves. They're not really arguing. They're just trying to get in the same page about what what the hell's going on with Sting. Mm -hmm. And the NWO invites Sting, who is headed to the back, over to the announce booth. He takes a few steps toward them, then points his bat menacingly and walks back down towards the ring only to jump the guardrail and leave the way he came. On commentary, the NWO assure themselves that Sting is going to sign his NWO contract any day now. (laughs) We go off the show with the Outsiders holding up their shirts on camera and Eric promising to see Piper live next week in Charlotte, North Carolina. So that's the show. Uh, We complained last week about the short matches, uh, but we really had no idea what was to come this week. For sure. They packed in a million short, inconsequential matches and some little promos that kind of move stories along. Mm -hmm. Uh, No major developments tonight, but I I guess, you know, as I don't like the short matches, I would prefer a longer match like the, you know, if we'd had the Regal Benoit match shot in a way that was more um, exciting, maybe that would make the show feel different. So this is one that really like breezed along. It, it was really easy to watch, but like, and it wasn't bad. Uh, it was maybe even above average, but there was like nothing here to strongly recommend. This was a good episode of Nitro that's certainly like not going to make it into the Nitro Hall of Fame. Right. Absolutely. No, it's just like you said, um, I think this has the most inconsequential matches on a single show. Like as we're going on doing this podcast, I'm forgetting a lot of the matches that happened earlier. Right. Like the amazing French Canadians wrestled someone. <laughs> that was uh, Scott Riggs and Robert Gibson. No, Joe Gomez and the Renegade. Oh God, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> no, you idiot. <laughs> um. It's weird. It's weird now that you mentioned the whole idea that the, uh, the announcers are not told about the NWO taking over broadcasting, because to me that seemed like the general theme for the night. Like that was what the whole setup was was for this takeover for the second sure. hour. And I will never understand why Eric is so into doing that. Like I, I could see in some instances where you're going to have like a a shocking new debut like mm-hmm. where it would be cool to keep a bunch of people in the dark what was served by not telling the announcers that this was coming on the show like what good did that do to the storytelling to the presentation to the reaction of the announcers mm-hmm. like nothing that tony tanay or or shivani said was any better on this show because they didn't know that that was coming well like the whole purpose of the commentators is to like convey the emotion of the match Right. Like they're they're the ones like if it's supposed to be surprising or it's supposed to be scary or something like that, they're they're capable of doing that without having it for some reason make it the setup so it's more natural. Yeah. Uh, I know that's like the like the whole history of WCW. Like one of the main themes is like that the announcers are left in the dark for a lot of things that happen in the ring and wanted them to have more natural reactions where it's just like, 
why don't you just have them do their jobs? You right. know, it's so it's such a bizarre way of running things. And, and it's not even the only example of useless working the boys on the show, as that's what this whole Sullivan Benoit thing is, too. It's this like we're going to work the boys with this angle to, to what end? Like what? What is served by doing that? If, even if it works out, what good have you done for the organization, for the show, for the characters? Like, I, I just don't understand the if your end goal is I'm going to work the boys. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's just proving how smart you are. But but it's 1996. No one is falling for this. Like, no one is believing that Benoit and woman. <laughs> it's ironic as hell. Uh, but right now, like, no one's believing that they are truly a couple, you know, based on the way that this is presented. All right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the, I would kind of say that's that's our overall feelings on the show. I, I wouldn't go out of your way to watch this one. But uh, but that's not to <laughs> no, say it was a bad episode or anything like that. No, it's just another it, it's one of those, you know, this is the week in which we're not going to have Hogan or Piper on. So we're just got to make do. The tournament match was on here. Um, yeah, I feel like we'd be talking a lot more about that if I could have seen it. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. Uh, so there's really just one thing left to do, and that is go through our segment of the night and our MVP. We'll start with MVP this week, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and give mine to Arn Anderson, who had a really great promo uh, called in to duty to get over the Piper Hogan feud. Um, because they needed somebody to do that. You know, the NWO certainly do it uh, throughout commentary in the second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, like, if you wanted a, a runner-up, I think the Outsiders on commentary would be my runner-up for MVP. But I thought Arn was good, and then he, you know, he came out and had a match and participated in another segment. And in that Horseman segment, uh, he was the one who certainly made the most sense <laughs> and came across <laughs> the best. Although nice. Mongo, uh, Mongo, like I said, that 85 Bears reference was good. But yeah, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say the best part, the best individual on the show for me was Arn Anderson. What about you? I'm going to give mine to Scott Hall. Um, I have found anytime that he's been on commentary, he's just brilliant, in my opinion. He He's really good at, at maintaining his heel persona and his character right while also making anyone that's in the ring look and sound good too mm-hmm. um he just he he's just a guy that has a natural knack for um the commentary aspect of wrestling and and every time he's been on there i've always enjoyed him and 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 like you said like he he's just so quick with like the burns right. in there that, that it's really like Lee Marshall was trying to get one up on him and he was just immediately like put in his place. <laughs> like you can't pull a fast one on Scott Hall. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I'm giving it mine to his performance. Um, I, I feel like he just stands out a little bit more than Kevin Nash. Cause I think Kevin Nash is a little bit more trying to, to sneak in like these insider comments. Sure. Whereas Hall kind of is like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm the bad guy here, but if you're putting me on commentary, I'm going to make the guys in the ring look good because that's what commentators do. So, uh, yeah, I'm giving mine to Scott Hall. All right. And then what was your segment of the night? Um, even though we, it was a weird angle to see it from, I would give it to Lord Steve Regal versus Chris Benoit. Um, I, I, I felt like it stood out especially in comparison to all the other garbage that we saw. Sure. So yeah. I, I feel like it should be pointed out like there was a good match on this show tonight. 
it just and and I like I mentioned before I enjoy the um, unique angle if it is for that which we saw the match yeah um, it would not be anything that I want them to do regularly or even rarely I just once in a while to see it from kind of like the the live crowd perspective was was a was a nice unexpected treat for this episode sure uh, my segment of the night I'm giving to the first Arn Anderson promo the one all about Piper and Flair and Hogan I thought that was just a uh, great talking by one of the best and uh, for me it was was just the best part of the show mm-hmm. all right well I think Dave unless there's anything else from you uh, that's that's gonna do a wrap on another episode of Nitro no I mean I I, I feel like a lot of the hype was for next week because uh, we're gonna be in Flair country they've I don't know if they said it officially, but Flair should be there. Um, did they say Hogan and Piper will be there? Uh, I think they just said Piper. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to be getting some of the bigger names. I would imagine that next week will be treated like a more important episode as far as a lead into Starcade. Um, so, you know, this is this is the week that we're doing right now. That it just got to move on from it <laughs> get on to next week when some of the bigger names are there to hype up this big tape review so i'm looking forward to next week much like uh, bill belichick we're on to charlotte yes <laughs> all right and we will cover that right here where the big boys play 20 years of nitro what's the name of this guy with the hair i, I, don't, I don't even know as a matter of fact No one told us.